You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family, the Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits. Gerard, this show is already off to an unhinged start. Literally unhinged because I accidentally broke the mic clasp for this. So, like, literally 10 seconds before we started recording, I broke it. Don't tell Ryan Abraham. Um, If you hear a loud crash, it's because the mic just slammed into the table. I have it precariously positioned here, so... We're, we're living on the wire here, Gerard. This thing could fall at any moment, but I'm here to deliver. I'm here to deliver this podcast. Unhinged, full cringe, the two-star composite recruiting podcast. And, and you're also getting attacked by mosquitoes. I heard you got mosquitoed up last week in the garage. garage I got absolutely <laughs> destroyed by mosquitoes biting me through my pants last week. And I was uh, like, are you kidding me? How is that even possible? But... They hit me on, uh, through my shirt, and they hit me in my pants. I get destroyed by mosquitoes. I have whatever pheromone that they like. And they got that hurricane been, blood. You got that hurricane it, blood. It has been scientifically proven that there are people that have uh, certain things in their blood, in, in their, their bodies that uh, mosquitoes like, uh, like 40% more attracted to. So I have that, whatever that is. And they just love my blood. I've uh, Even just as a kid, I've always gotten hit by spiders, mosquitoes. I got anything around me. It finds me and it wants to suck my blood. So <laughs> it definitely sucks. Cause I mean, these mosquitoes we got out here in the IE now, we have these Asian tiger mosquitoes, which are evidently they're not, uh, they're not natural to this environment. And um, they ended up here like, a, I don't know how many years ago, but when they bite you, sometimes your skin will actually blister. And uh, my mom got hit with them and I've gotten hit with them. And I've had some instances. I had like almost like a scar on my heel for like a year from one of my mosquito bites. And I, and I had to free, it was like a big ass water blister that resulted from it. So yeah, they definitely suck um, out here. So I just killed one um, in midair but that's a good sign because, you know, once you kill them and there's blood in the water, then they send, know. Don't send come back message. over here. Send the message. Yeah, I'm sending the message. I'm sending the message. We're not playing around. The fan is on. I just killed two of you in midair. Don't come close. I'm like a human Venus flytrap. One could say that USC sent a message with splattering of Stanford last week. You see what I did there, Gerard? I'm on my transition A game right now. So we're going to talk about. A lot of things. I didn't think there would be a ton of things to talk about, but our docket is filled to the brim, and we got a couple of listener questions. We're going to talk about scores across college football. Of course, we're going to do Friday Night Lights. 
We're going to get Gerard's recruiting angle. There were a ton of recruits out at the Stanford game to see that big win. We have a couple of linebacker updates, one visiting, one committing elsewhere. We'll talk about that for our Colt Open. But before we get into all that, I just have to quickly remind you a thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. You know her, you love her, the number one real estate agent in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. Make sure you check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. See all the listings and, and things she has going on with her team. Again, that's at Meredith Real Estate on Instagram. Meredith Schlosser, number one real estate agent in Los Angeles. Gerard, here we are back again. We've been talking a lot about 2024 linebackers because the last two weeks, USC has had an official visit from a 2024 linebacker, Chris Cole two weeks ago, and then Ephraim Asiata this past weekend for Stanford. So we're going to lead off with Ephraim coming off his official visit for the Stanford game. Unlike Chris Cole, I actually had my eyes on Ephraim down on the sidelines. And how could I not? Because he was there with his dad, and Ephraim was rocking the big junior Seau, number 55, San Diego Chargers throwback jersey on the sideline. It was always a great side. You love to see when those kids are out here, you know, fully decked out in USC gear or for this case, you know, throwing it back to uh, the little poly connection with the with the legendary junior sale. So he was out there looking like he was having a great time. His dad was in USC swag. He had a whole bag of USC stuff. And, you know, we still have Utah as the crystal ball leader. We haven't gotten a Blair flair yet. But from all accounts, USC did a really, really good job on this visit, obviously. The results on the field also help with a with the destruction of Stanford. But for the most part, you know, he and his family, while Utah has the buzz, they came into this visit with open ears for this trip. They really wanted to see what USC is about. And we know that USC, you know, does have uh, a little bit of place in his heart. You know, USC is a school he has looked at in the past, the school he liked growing up, obviously, with USC and their Polynesian connections the poly pipeline if you will and obviously Ephraim was representing a little bit of that with that junior sale jersey so definitely you can see the family you know you know giving a full embrace to what everything USC had to offer on this trip and you can check out Blair's uh catch up with him his, his recap of his official visit that is up on uscfootball.com and if you can't find it just go to his uh 247 profile and it's there but yeah USC made a move with uh, Ephraim Asiata after this visit yeah, USC made a move, and I think it felt like they could make a move. And because of his background, and we shared a little bit about that uh, in the war room, and you mentioned on the podcast last week, Shotgun had brought up uh, the incident that Ephraim was involved in where he and two of his other friends were shot, and he was in the ICU, and there was some thought that, you know, perhaps he wasn't going to make it and being sidelined suddenly when you're playing football and, you know, football is, is obviously a goal. It's something that you're looking to get back to and it can help you with the rehabilitation process, but there are going to be hurdles in that real real rehabilitation process, which 
you know, make you maybe second guess that and you start thinking about life without football. And it goes to something that Elijah Newby, who is committed to USC, four-star linebacker out of Connecticut, talked about making a decision as if football did not exist. And you kind of get the sense that with Ephraim, that was a very real possibility in his life. And so looking at these schools and looking what the schools have to offer and, and his family considering these schools, certainly football is first and foremost, and it's hard to overlook football as a factor. And in this case, I think you've got Utah and you've got USC. And certainly USC has not been at the same level as Utah in recent years. Uh, last year, they play twice. They lose to them twice. I realize first game was very close. It was in Salt Lake City. And then the second game, Caleb Williams gets hurt. But nevertheless, within the last decade, Utah football has been better than USC football. And you have to understand these are young guys and they're looking – at this decision through that prism of what schools have been successful and what schools have put such and such players in the NFL, et cetera. So from that angle, I think Utah has definitely taken advantage of USC with players that are either, you know, from Utah or in, in, in certain cases, even Nevada and Arizona recruiting head to head. So Utah has had some success against USC. But again, what makes this recruitment a tad different is that I think Ephraim and his family look at this and at least very much consider the bigger picture outside of football. And, and football, certainly, and we'll get to this in the recruiting angle, when you go and you watch USC play in the question marks with defense, that game against Stanford was one of their best, most complete games that they've played defensively in the past two years. So you come away from that game feeling much better about USC's defense, about the coaching staff, about the scheme, about the culture. And by the way, it was a pretty good turnout, you know, for the first and really the last Pac-12 opener that USC will play against Stanford. So it's very interesting. There's a lot of dynamics there, as you said. Blair Angulo uh, did a great job recapping and getting a hold of Ephraim post visit. I think without, you know, getting too much into the premium story, I will say one thing that stood out to me, which is different between this recruitment and Chris Cole's recruitment, Chris Cole admitted, listen, they gave me a lot to think about. I think his quote with both the USC visit and the Tennessee visit was it's making my decision much harder, which to me reading between the lines, having done this for 20 years says I kind of made my decision and it's just making me sort of second guess that decision. And obviously we'll talk a little bit about his recruitment and the status of his recruitment here in a bit, maybe a good segue. But I think with Ephraim, the message that he sent was this was a big visit for me and USC is at the top of the list for me. Not to say that USC is his leader. He didn't come out and say that specifically. But in so many words, it was USC really showed well here. And I'm still looking at these other schools and I'm still trying to make a decision. But this was a really big visit. So I, I just get the sense that he's not quite as far along down the road uh, with his thoughts on schools. Mm -hmm. We do know that there's two crystal balls there 
for him going to Utah, one being by Steve Wolfong, the other being Steve Bartell. Uh, Steve Bartell is the publisher for our Utah site, does a great job on the Ute Zone, I believe is what it's called. And uh, obviously still Wolfong, who has a, a very good network of sources and is on top of crystal balls. He's kind of the king of crystal balls. He you know, is big on the crystal ball feature and is right a hell of a lot more than he's wrong. Um, so those crystal balls were made and they were made after I believe Ephraim Asiata had scheduled his official visit to USC, but obviously before he's taken that official visit. And so we know that USC did make a move with Chris Cole, um, but the basically the feedback I got from this side of the fence on Chris Cole was we're in it. So, you know, and that's that's not a bad thing, but that's not necessarily a lot of optimism, you know, to say we think we're in it <laughs> rather than we think we're going to get him. And certainly from a read standpoint, you know, there have been instances where USC thought they were going to get certain recruits. We can go back to Draylon Miller, the receiver out of Silsby and Ty Anthony Smith. Uh, the linebacker out of Jasper, Texas, and there was a lot of confidence there. And you understand why, because both those guys were silently committed at one time to USC. And there have been other instances where you get silent commitments. Silent commitments are like farts in the wind. They really don't mean a whole lot. They come and go. You have to base your feeling more on the relationship, more on the communication with certain people inside that circle and certainly more than anything, and I've said this time and time again, and I will say this until I die, actions speak louder than words in recruiting. And so if guys are taking other visits and they're doing other things, you always have to understand that you may not be quite in the position that you think you are in a recruitment. So from that standpoint, I think uh, we'll see what happens here with uh, Ephraim Asiata. And if you know he wants to shut things down here in the near future, I think that's still a little bit open-ended as to when he's going to make an announcement. But I, I do feel like USC is more than just in it here. Uh, I wouldn't go so far to say I think they're his new leader yet, but I do think that uh, they are right there neck and neck with Utah, and it's just going to take a little more recruitment. It's going to take, um, you know, Perhaps just a little more show on the field. We'll see. You know, it's one of those things that, uh, again, his story is very unique. He has a very unique background. And I think really the question is just how much does that influence his recruitment? You know, how how much does you not playing football, academics, and all those things? Because those are the boxes that USC checks, which Utah doesn't really check. You know, Utah is a little more of a regional school. No offense to, to Ute fans. Uh, USC, just from an academic standpoint, network standpoint, is a bit more national and global. And they do a great job uh, of really accentuating that and underlining that on these visits. But for some players, that's just not the top factor. That's just not the thing that is going to be the decision maker. With some players, it's going to be more player development, more playing time. Are you winning national championships? What's my exposure for other guys? It's going to be how much are you going to pay me right now? Like, I just want NIL money. I, I, your love and your interest in me is going to be shown by how much you're going to pay me and my family. How much life changing money am I going to get? And the sooner the better. And then there are other guys that actually do look at the sort of bigger picture of things and look at life outside of football and life after football. 
And remember, Ephraim is sort of kind of behind the ball in terms of the process of his recruitment. Obviously, that incident cost him his entire junior season. Obviously, he had a lot more pressing things to worry about, like learning to walk again and get strong enough to, to worry, worry about recruitment. He didn't have a lot of schools recruiting him until this past uh, spring and summer. And even then, he only has six offers, and I'm sure that list might grow a little bit. He's off to a very good start to the season. And I got to look, look at him, Gerard, up on the sideline. He does look like a legit six foot two, kind of a lean linebacker, 210. I would say that's about right. But I like the I like the look of him, just seeing him up close and personal. Obviously, he's not in pads or seeing him out of game, but just the look at him on the sideline. I did like what I saw. And who's to say, Gerard, there is a, uh, you know, a pretty big game coming up in the Coliseum in several weeks with uh, Utah and USC. Maybe that will also be deciding a lot more off the field in, ter- in terms of recruitment with Asiata if he has not made his decision by then. So it could be another feather in the cap for the Trojans. You've been mentioning Chris Cole throughout this kind of cold open talking about linebackers and Ephraim Asiata. So let's just use that as a transition to the next topic, which is USC did in fact not get Chris Cole because that would have been our lead for today. But Chris Cole went ahead and committed to Georgia. He did so on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Shout out to the the HQ, the, the mothership. But Chris Cole committed to the Bulldogs over the Trojans as expected. You know, Georgia was the crystal ball leader. And, you know, USC and Tennessee tried to make a late push there before his commitment. But it was not enough to upend Kirby Smart in that defending national champion defense as well. So Chris Cole is going to be a Bulldog USC still searching for an inside linebacker for this class. So, Gerard, where do the Trojans go now? A lot of maybe not plan A's are, are, are on, the, on the board right now for, for USC. They go right back to Ephraim Asiata <laughs> in the <laughs> opener. I mean, that's kind of where they're at right now. And as you said, with Asiata, you know, his recruitment is a bit delayed and he is behind a lot of other recruits at this point in time in terms of evaluation. And even just watching his huddle film, you know, we're not seeing a ton of highlights, let alone, you know, straight game film, trying to place where he's at, where he fits. He's playing at the line of scrimmage quite a bit. So he's a lot different type of linebacker than Chris Cole. Chris Cole plays strong safety and he plays mostly receiver. He's a skill player that has size and length that you can put on some weight and you can move him up near the line of scrimmage. So he's projected from the standpoint of playing off the line of scrimmage and you're kind of putting weight on him and you're hoping he has the physicality to play up near the line of scrimmage. He doesn't necessarily show that on film to me, but when you see his body and you see the length, you understand, okay, that's going to be what we want in the front seven. He, he will be great in coverage. You know, he's playing safety now. He has really good redirect. And uh, that frame, you like what you can do in one-on-one situations in space with a player like that. With Asiana, he's playing at the line of scrimmage more of a, as an edge rusher than he is playing off the line of scrimmage. So in terms of how he plays in space, it's still a bit of an unknown. Uh, He reminds me a little bit, maybe it's just the number uh, and the Polynesian connection, but he reminds me a little bit of C.V. Namora, 
who played at USC and mm-hmm. transferred, and I think he's at Fresno State now. But there's a little bit of that in terms of how he's used in the high school level and how uh, he plays. The big difference between Asiata and Namora is the last name, and knowing that you know the bloodlines there with Ephraim's father are very strong and just with the family in general. So that's always a, a, a little box check in terms of evaluation in the back of your mind. You know, it's not the biggest thing in the world, but it's nice when you know that there's a relative uh, directly that's played in the league and been successful and was a very good college football player and a guy that was also very good uh, at a different position, at a more athletic position. So, yeah, you're, you're kind of trying to figure out, you know, where does USC go here and what type of body type are they really looking for? You know, they're looking for an inside linebacker. They're not looking for an edge guy here because that's the difference between Brian Odom being the primary recruiter here and Roy Manning. So they're looking for somebody who can play Will or can play Mike. And I think both in Asiata and Cole's instance i i think you're looking more at will than mike linebackers you know usc is going to continue to stay in contact with kingston valio muasa he's a little more of a potential mike he's a little bigger body but i mean you, you know it's just like you're seeing right now with tacky curtis he's practiced a bunch at mike linebacker right now he's playing mostly will linebacker why is that because of the calls because of the cerebral side of playing mike linebacker and having a freshman they don't have the confidence yet in him to play him a bunch of Mike and be able to make those reads. So that's going to be sort of a, a transition. But I think those inside linebacker spots are very interchangeable in the defense. I mean, uh, Rayshon Davis has played both at USC at this point. You know, he's played both Mike and he's played both Will. But who they put at Mike seems to have a lot to do with just their grasp of the defense. And that's one of the reasons why Eric Gentry ended up playing Mike, because he just understood the defense that well. You still have Ty Anthony Smith, who I talked about a little earlier, down there, Jasper, Texas, committed to Texas A&M. And you don't know if that'll shake loose. He was formally silently committed to USC and really, really liked USC a lot. We'll see how Texas A&M plays this year and see if uh, the NIL factor is enough to keep those guys committed if Texas A&M can't right this ship and get things going because they just didn't look like an improved team against uh, Florida State. You know, they got beat by Florida State pretty good. Um, and their uh, offense and their defense, they both just look sloppy and just kind of look like the same team we've seen the last couple of years. Dylan Williams, we actually have a recruiting update on him. Uh, we put a little bit in the war room and not to step on the toes of the war room, but at this point in time, USC's in minimal contact with him and he doesn't believe that they're very serious in recruiting him. So I would not necessarily expect him to pop up on campus uh, unless there's a little more activity with him coming from um, Brian Odom or somebody on the coaching staff, you know, reaching out and really trying to get him to campus. Um, Wyatt Simmons, who USC offered a scholarship to uh, just over the summer, kind of late summer as they started missing out on the guys, he's already committed to Arkansas. Didn't give me the vibe like he was going to be a guy that was going to be interested in USC either. Michael Baganowski, who we always kind of joke, sounds like a fake name, but it's a real name, out of Kansas, kind of a, a Kansas State sort of uh, low on the radar type of player, but he's kind of jumped up here 
um, in the rankings over the past couple months and a guy that plays some quarterback in high school. And so another one of those players, uh, we talk about Jamil Muhammad and his uh, ability as a pass rusher and how you see the awareness and some of the things you don't necessarily get from defensive linemen because he played quarterback in high school. And so that's what you have here with Michael Boganowski. You have a guy that playing both sides of the ball and sort of has an idea of what he wants to do. And uh, there's a certain amount of awareness uh, playing in space and, and doing some things just because he, he he's seen it from both angles, both offensively and defensively. And then you've got Devin Smith out of Georgia, another smaller linebacker, kind of in that six foot, six foot one, you know, 200, 210 pound range a little more similar to Ty Anthony Smith and looks like a guy that was a plan B for Ty Anthony Smith. Uh, not necessarily your SEC, like high level recruit uh, from everything I've heard. He's sort of a plan C guy for the likes of a Georgia or a Florida uh, or an Alabama. He's uh, more of a sort of a low end, maybe Tennessee type of guy that they take because they miss on somebody else. Um, that's the evaluation that I get from the locals down there. I don't know how serious USC is about him. Again, you know, do you put all your eggs in the basket of the guys that you've already been recruiting and you just keep after them? One of the funny things that Ty Anthony Smith said among the, ty- the, the funny things, because he was pretty candid in his post interviews after he committed to Texas A&M. But one of the things he said outside of, yeah, I was silently committed to USC and admitting that was that he decided he wanted to go to Texas A&M because they were just they were recruiting him, even though they knew he was silently committed to USC. And it was sort of that relentlessness. Well, you know what? You know what's even more relentless than <laughs> continuing to recruit a guy who's silently committed somewhere? How about continuing to recruit a guy that's publicly, publicly committed, committed. So, again, we'll see. I, I mean, we are in the NIL era. And with Draylon and Ty Anthony Smith, I think there was definitely uh, some consideration there. That was a factor. More so with Draylon, but I think Ty Anthony came along for the ride. And we'll see how that shakes out if Texas A&M is bad. And we all know that Jimbo Fesher has a ridiculous buyout, and that's going to be real difficult for the Texas uh, boosters to be able to kind of swallow and have to push him out. But it could happen. Um, You know, they're paying him a lot of money now uh, to be fairly mediocre and, um, you know, they need to kind of pull one out where they can beat some team that they're not supposed to beat and kind of hang themselves on that and say, hey, listen, you know, we we still have potential because look what we did. They, they've been living off that Alabama win uh, for a little while now, and um, they're still getting commits, you know, even though they've been a pretty mediocre team, they're still getting commits. And the same goes for Miami. And so, again, we're in the infancy of that NIL period. And if guys are making deals and they're doing things where – you know, they, they're, they're sort of locked in wink, wink. Um, that is what it is. You know, they're, they're just, they're just going to go with that NIL money and those opportunities. And it doesn't really matter uh, if they're, you know, getting development or they're playing for a winning team or the culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's just going to be the thing that, you know, it moves the needle in their recruitment. Gerard, Chris Cole, Ephraim Asiata, you could only take one. Which one are you taking? I mean, I'd have to take Chris Cole just based on the amount of evaluation, watching film and seeing what he's done in in the projected body. I think you see, you know, the athleticism and some of the things that, you know, you want to interject in USC's 
defense. I feel like with Asiata, I love the name. I love the bloodlines. I just haven't seen a lot of him on film. So it would be blind uh, commitment, you know, that you take at that point where you're kind of hoping he can back off the line of scrimmage. Because at that height, it's unlikely he's going to play at the line of scrimmage. I mean, he's got to put on a lot of weight. It's not that he can't, you know, he could very easily be 250 pounds in a couple years. But again, we're looking at what's the easier projection and what have you seen more of? I'm not completely sold on Chris Cole. Uh, again, in terms of physicality near the line of scrimmage, talking about a guy that is going to play linebacker, it's a little different. But he does play some at the line of scrimmage. I mean, he does play uh, off the edge sometimes, blitz. You know, he's moved around quite a bit. So I do like the eyes that you get from playing uh, different spots on the field and the comfort level that he seems to show being able to play those different spots. Um, it's just a matter of point of attack. You know, can he tackle in space? Can he do those things against – you know, high level competition. Cause it's one thing being 6'3, 210 pounds, and you're playing against high school kids and you're kind of sort of making solo tackles. But it's another thing when you're going against the, you know, 220 pound back and you've got to be able to, to, to take that guy down and take his legs out. And so we see it with a, a lot of guys, a lot of players, you know, they get to that college level and they just can't tackle in space. And so I haven't seen a whole lot of guys, you know, even in this group outside of maybe Kingston that really makes solo tackles and guys go down quick, you know, and that's kind of what you want to see. You want to see that violence at the point of attack. But I mean, of that whole group, um, you know, I, I'm a big Dylan Williams fan still. I, I know a lot of people are kind of like, Oh, you know, he's overrated and he doesn't do that much, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know. I think there's a lot of copium there because he's committed to Oregon right now, but he kind of has the athleticism uh, to some extent of, of, of Chris Cole. I mean, you know, we haven't put Chris Cole on on, on a clock, so it's not easy to, to sit here and try to compare. But playing at Long Beach Poly, and you know he's playing against good competition, and I've seen Dylan Williams do some things, and he's filling out. You know, he's a guy that was kind of a 190, 200-pound um, edge rusher, and now he's played off the line of scrimmage, and I've seen him in passing tournaments, and he plays really well in space. He's shown that he can do it. You know, that's the thing. It's some guys playing in space. It's just a different game than sit, standing there up at the line of scrimmage. And so, you know, it'd be hard to, to, to pass him up. Um, I do like Ty Anthony Smith, but he is small. And that's a little bit of uh, a hesitation there for me. And, you know, and granted, I, I feel like that's an overrated trait when you're talking about an inside linebacker. You know, Ray Lewis wasn't very big. Ray Lewis is like six foot and a half, six one. He's not a huge linebacker. There's a lot of guys, I mean, going back to that Jimmy Johnson era, and maybe that was just a formative era for me watching football, but they played with those smaller linebackers that were fast, and Jimmy Johnson kind of started doing that at Miami. And, um, you know, speed and being able to run down angles, you know, that can that can, that can can do a lot. And just because a guy is not big and he's not 6'2", 250, or 6'3", uh, 250, you know, if you you do it right schematically and you can keep those blockers off of him, he's just a tackling machine. He's just too fast. He's just too quick. And so, you know, I don't necessarily um, think that's a, a huge knock in, on Ty Anthony Smith, um, but he's not ranked very high. You know, he's interestingly ranked pretty low and we have seen him uh, quite a bit. And I say we 24 seven sports network. So that always made me a little hesitant about him too. Um, you know, it's just a shame that, you know, you got, uh, again, Valiamuasa uh, 
and Dylan Williams. I mean, that would be it. You know, if uh, I think uh, all things were even, you'd get those two guys and call it a day. You'd put Williams mm-hmm. at will and you put Valamu Asa at uh, Mike and you'd say, OK, we got our linebackers. And that back in the day, the Pete Carroll days, that's how it would go down. It would go down. You know, their junior year. So those guys have been recruited. Dylan Williams would have committed when he commit to USC originally, and he would have been locked up and it would have been a done deal. But this is a different era with NIL, and it's a different era where USC is trying to get back to that point where they can consistently win championships. And then that whole aspect of player development is on their side. And we're not just talking about the life after football and the connections and the opportunities for NIL once you get to college and all these other things sort of away from the football field. I mean, since the Clay Helton era, it's had to be redirect. The sales pitch, the narrative has been redirected to, yeah, but you want to live in LA and you want to you know, have this great degree. And again, these are football players, man, and they're kids, they're immature, and they're thinking about football and they're thinking about the NFL. That is first and foremost. And a lot of instances, for right or for wrong, that's what their families are thinking too. And so USC has to get that narrative back to where it's like, yeah, you've got all these things off the field. You've got all this great um, opportunity in terms of education and if football doesn't work out, but that's sort of a sideshow. That's, that's our, that's our sort of uh, our little cherry on top to let's come, come here and win championships, you know, come here and get drafted. Cause look at all these guys we had drafted last year. Was young hurricane Martinez thinking about the NFL? No, <laughs> no, I, I stopped thinking about the NFL probably after my freshman year of high school. And I started looking around going, yeah, man, I, I don't have any six, four dudes in my, in my recent family history. Hey, look, look at that emotional maturity, uh, Gerard, you, you knew right away, you, you knew to let go of the dream right away. So I'm proud yeah, of you the that. Dream, the dream was like, go play Juco ball, like Mount Sack, like that would have been pretty cool. Cause you know, they were pretty good and, uh, you know, they were winning national championships. But, yeah, at that point, you're like, OK, I got to, you know, either poop or get off the pot and figure out, am I going to continue to be a mediocre student and bored in high school or am I actually going to focus on academics? So I was like, after I got out of high school as a mediocre student because I was bored and I probably didn't want to be there as much as the teachers didn't want to be there. It was like, all right, I'm just myopic focusing on grades. And I did really well. And that's why I'm here today, Chris. <laughs> the, a little wisdom for the kids. I, I don't think any kids listen to this podcast, but a little l- wisdom for the kids who listen to this podcast. This podcast for, is PG-13. Actually, it's really not, though. I mean, I think we're pretty good. Could we get a G rating on this podcast? I don't know. I We drop an occasional cuss word every now and then. But you it's, do. It's, you do. Fair enough. I I drop an occasional curse word every now and then, but I, th- I think it's okay. I think we could. I think we could slide slide uh, for the rating. Uh, of course, I would like to be PG PG though for uh, Prince George's County. Let's go, DMV. Shout him out. We can now move on to the other names that were in attendance for Stanford, and I'm just going to run them down real quick, starting with the commitments that were on hand. Uh, Four star cornerback Marcellus Williams. Four-star safety, Marquise Gallegos, the uh, the unofficial mascot of this podcast. Three-star offensive lineman, Hayden Treader out of Colorado made the trip out here. Uh, looking more closely at the 2024 guys, four-star St. John Bosco defensive back, Jason Mitchell. Three-star Huntington Beach offensive tackle, Jonah Taunau, who is also a Stanford commit. Uh, Ephraim Asiata, as we mentioned, three-star Bishop Gorman 
offensive tackle Alexander Ruggaroli. That's a fun name to say. I probably said it wrong. Three-star St. John Bosco, running back Khalil Warren. And then Diamond Ranch, defensive tackle Trinidad Wilson has been through three straight games to start the season. So Trinidad Wilson looking like a, a staffer so many times he's been on the sideline. Moving on to the 2025 prospects, four-star Mission Viejo cornerback Dijon Lee, four-star Bishop Gorman offensive lineman Douglas Utu, four-star Bishop Gorman offensive lineman Gerard Save Me Here If I Screw It Up, Susu Alofaituli. What do you think? That sounds close enough to me. Okay, close enough for me. He is a four-star Bishop Gorman offensive lineman. Three-star Jay Sarah off- offensive lineman Jake Flores. Three-star Sarah Edge Luke Webb. Three-star Norco Edge Cameron Brown. I believe this is his second game. Uh, 2026 recruits four-star Loyola cornerback Brandon Lockhart, who I believe has also been to all three games. Four-star Oaks Christian running back Deshaun Bredeau. Three-star Malvern Prep defensive tackle Cameron Brickle, who actually picked up an offer in the spring, all the way out from Pennsylvania. Uh, Forney, Texas running back Javian Osborne, St. John Bosco Edge, Dutch Horace. And then the 2027 guy who I saw there, the notable one, was Huntington Beach, California, Brady Edmonds, who we mentioned is potentially, you know, the next big uh, QB prospect out of Southern California. Plays for Huntington Beach. Uh, with Jonah Taunau, and I believe this is his uh, second game of the season. So, uh, Gerard, just looking at that list, would you say this is the most stacked uh, visitor list we've had through three games this year? Yeah, it's the best list, and it's good because you did have a better turnout, you know, night game, opening against another Pac-12 rival that USC may or may not see in the future. And they played well. And so I think everything sort of came together. I think it's interesting to see Jason Mitchell, you know, show up on campus. That's been a very interesting recruitment uh, that we thought would probably be done by now. And he would not be committed to USC. Jonah Tanau, who is a Stanford commit, but hung out a lot with uh, some of the USC uh, guys and sort of on the sidelines. And so, you know, potentially kind of trying to get that second look from USC. We just don't know what direction USC is going to go at this point when it comes to trying to find another offensive lineman in the class because they lose Manasseh Atete. And, you know, going into the summer, it was three to four. So it wasn't necessarily like we have to take four it was three to four and they could have taken more. There were other potential offensive line commits. Some guys, they basically said, Hey, if you're not going to commit now, then uh, don't take your official visit. And some guys that took their official visit and they wanted to get some type of answer and they weren't ready and they got passed over. So it's one of those things where are they going to pivot and go back on some of those players um, Jonathan Au was going to officially visit USC that last week. The catch-all so, weekend. The catch-all weekend. And that's sort of what we know. And so it's one of those things where you kind of felt like, ah, you know, is he a top priority guy? Um, so, you know, maybe they stay with three and they say, you know, we, we want to bring in somebody from the transfer portal. And it, it, all of this, you know, has to stack with, 
the type of contributions you're getting from players you've got from the portal. You know, as these years go on, you're kind of looking back at, okay, how successful has the portal been for us? Because you can, you know, sort of rationalize it as a safety net and recruit it that way. But if these guys are not contributing and and they're not at least getting to the point where you feel like, okay, what we thought we were going to get, we got, you know, you look at a guy uh, like Jarrett Kingston, which is an interesting situation because he was playing left tackle up at Washington state. And he was a starting left tackle for Washington state comes USC's playing guard and this offensive line. And we'll get into it. I'm sure to some extent when we talk recruiting ankle is not quite playing maybe up to what the expectations were. I think the expectations were a little higher. And thus far, I don't feel like they've quite met those expectations yet. I think they did play better against Stanford than they really have the past two games, quite frankly. And maybe it's just, you know, one of those things where it it's just the chemistry and finding, you know, whether – uh, you know, guys like Pregnon are, are, are really meshing with the other players. And, and, you know, do we have the guys lined up properly? I mean, they seem like they have their rotation for the front uh, five, the starting five, uh, what they want to go with. But, yeah, it, it's one of those things where you're kind of comparing that with these guys that we're getting out of high school and how we're able to develop them. Because you can look at the high school ranks and you got Alani Noah starting in the first game that signals, hey, you know what? We can get guys out of high school, whether they're four stars, five stars, or three stars, because Alani Noah was only a three star. We got to make sure that we're getting the best player available. And whether that guy is in the portal or whether that guy is in the high school rank. So we're still kind of waiting to see if there's a move to be made here. What we do know is there's been no additional scholarship offers given. And that's been true at quite a few positions outside of linebacker. Linebacker is really the only position where we kind of saw that flurry of offers go out at the end of the summer when they missed out on Kingston, when Dylan Williams was always already off the board, um, when they missed out on Ty Anthony Smith. So with the offensive line, we have not seen that. So, again, that makes me wonder if they really want to push those numbers and get back to four out of the high school ranks or just kind of sit on three and see what they can get in the transfer portal. Um, I think, you know, out of that group, um, you know, Deshaun Rideau is, is good to see getting down to campus in 2026 running back that uh, they've offered. Interestingly enough, before they offered Rideau, they offered Javion Osborne, who is down at Red Oak High School. Uh, they saw him when they were uh, going to see Warren Roberson, who USC recruited as a safety out of the 2023 class. And they really like Javion Osborne. And I've talked to the coaches down there about him, and they think he's going to be super special. They think he's going to be like the next guy. And so, um, actually, you know what? Am I getting that? No, I'm getting that mixed up. He's not at Red Oak. He's at Forney. So they were down there to go see um, Aaron. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. The safety that they Flowers? were recruiting. Flowers, yes. Aaron I Flowers. You, I got you. <laughs> it was who they were recruiting. And they thought they were going to get. There's a great example of a read that was just off where they thought they had him wrapped up and Oregon swooped in with Chris Hampton recruiting that area, the former Tulsa DC that Oregon uh, hired. And uh, I was talking to um, the head coach, Jeff Leaner, 
And he was like, kind of giving me a heads up. Yeah, man, Oregon's really in it for, for flowers. I really think it's Oklahoma and USC, but like, I think Chris Hampton is a hell of a recruiter and, and they could definitely uh, uh, snatch him away. So I had to kind of sort of, you know, dig in a little deeper and, and try to call some other people to kind of get a, a feel for that recruitment. And so while USC went down there to go see Aaron Flowers, the safety, they came across Osborne and they think Osborne's going to be a real special player. Fleener had uh, previously been at Allen High School when Kyler Murray was there. So we had a lot of good things about, to say about Flowers, but he also had a lot of good things to say about Osborne. So that's an interesting one that, you know, he's out here able to make it on campus, starting it early with him in the 2026 class, uh, starting it early with Deshaun Rideau, who we just put up some isolation film um, at the end of last week. So if you guys want to go check that out, that's actually free. You can check that out on our YouTube page or um, it might still be on the site in the archives. Uh, you know, very good game against uh, Roosevelt High School, uh, a good young back. And I think Brandon Lockhart, talking about 2026, another guy getting in on campus every week. That's how you do it. You know, that's how you get the local guys. That's how you lock it down. You get them to be on campus. They're around the staff. They build that relationship. It's an extension of the Trojan family. They feel comfortable. And that way, when they go and they take that one visit to Oregon or they take, you know, a couple visits to out-of-state schools, it's not like, oh, wow, I'm so enamored and it just becomes, I just want to keep visiting here. I mean, you're looking at guys like Aiden Breeland who have visited Texas A&M more to, over the summer than they did USC. I mean, those guys are just not been to USC a whole lot. And so you want them to feel like USC is the place to be. They want to be at those games. Some of that has to do with winning. A lot of that has to do with winning, but also the environment and the buzz and the energy. Young guys want to be around that. Kids want to be around that. They want to see the Coliseum rock and they want to see USC winning. And that becomes very formative in their recruitments, especially early on. So it's really good to see Brandon Lockhart down there consistently. Um, Hayden Lowe has been down there a couple of times. Uh, Deshaun Rodeau, I think this was the first game he was at. Um, but seeing some of these guys like Dejon Lee, you know, that was big, the, the Bishop Gorman kids, getting them there. You know, Bishop Gorman, Vegas isn't that far away. You want to get those guys. You have to get those guys on campus regularly. Then you can't, you can't be shocked when these guys are on campus once during the whole spring ball. And then they go during the summer and they go on this whole visit tour where they're seeing six schools. And then they put out a top five and USC isn't in it. You can't be shocked. You know, you're the local school. They got to be down on campus routinely. And you got to figure out who the champion is in the room to get their ass in the car, to get them on campus, to just be around that staff, to be around the players, to feel like they're very comfortable. And they want to keep coming back. They want to keep, they want to come back. They want to see Andy Hansen. They want to see Gavin Morris. They want to hang out with, with, the, with the staff and they want to see Caleb Williams and, oh man, Heisman. Oh, that's kind of cool. They idolize those type of kids, but this is all taking time. This is all a process, you know, and USC's in year two of that process. I know who gets them out there, Gerard. It's the, uh, the legendary Bishop Gorman carpool story from the Peristyle. That's who gets them out there. I know. <laughs> Trojan I know dad you, for life. Trojan dad you, for life. If you know, you know, if you know, you know, the carpool, the Bishop Gorman carpool, that that's where the, that's where the commits go down. And it was it's obviously a, a good game. For them to be out there with the Zachary Branch, Bishop Gorman zone, doing big things on the field, doing big well, things yeah. on the field. Again, that connection and seeing those guys successful in the Coliseum, and you haven't seen that. You haven't seen 
a lot of that because USC, A, not really developing the talent they have, B, not winning games. And so, you know, you look at modern day and you look at all those recruits that they have there in the 2023, now the 2024 class, and the lack of pull USC has had there recently. I mean, how many guys from modern day have been super successful at USC? You know, Amon Ross St. Brown. And, you know, people were just recently talking about Jordan Davidson trending to Texas, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, listen, Jordan Davidson, he's got ties to Raleigh Brown. Raleigh Brown, you know, I'm in a red shirt. It looks like a precursor for a possible transfer. That's not going to help them with Jordan Davidson. So it's all connected. And again, this is why I differ with the opinion. You just go out and you recruit the best players like it's a draft. It is recruiting and there are ties and there are connections and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can overcome it in some situations if you're just winning that much. If you're Alabama, yeah, you can kind of say, you know what, whatever package deals. None of that stuff matters. We put all kinds of guys in the NFL. We got the best facilities. We've got national championships after national championships. And you can and you can sort of brutally force your way through all the sort of nonsense drama and connections that go on with recruiting. But if you're at a point where you're just trying to rebuild and you're trying to gain that local eye back, you have to sort of go with the flow and understand that, yeah, there are going to be instances where maybe you don't play a guy enough or a guy didn't develop on your team. And that is going to hurt you at whatever high school. It won't hurt you maybe with all the players, but it may hurt you with some of the players. And so this is something that USC, they're trying to work through the kinks of that and get to the point where they're winning. And then you can sort of recruit despite whatever obstacle is there, you know, because I mean, that happens all the time. That happened even in the PKR era. There were instances where there was a kid from up north that they recruited and he got hurt and you know, the coach was all PO'd because USC basically stopped recruiting him. And he was, I, I believe he was committed at that point and they stopped recruiting him. But, you know, the coach had one sort of explanation as to why he was getting uh, dropped, basically. Um, and then the behind the scenes, and of course, the schools can't say anything publicly about recruits, right? So they can't necessarily give their side of the story. But the side of the story that I got was the guy basically flunked um, one of his classes during the fall and, and uh, USC was like, we can't take this guy when his grade point average is this low already. And so it was one of those things where they parted ways, but USC was like going to be persona non grata in the Bay area after that. And they're not going to be able to recruit this school and that school. And it just didn't happen. It just wasn't that way. But again, you know, at that point, USC had it rolling and they're winning national championships. You know, you, you it's kind of one of those things. It's like, you know, you can, uh, power through some of those things at this point in time usc has got wins and championships that they've got to have before you can kind of kind of burst through those obstacles that are going to be put in front of you recruiting bosco or recruiting modern day or wherever but it you got to kind of start somewhere and again when you get guys like brandon lockhart when you get guys like deshaun Rideau, um you know hayden Lowe. Uh, Noah McHale, et cetera. You get these guys on campus and you get them on campus consistently and you're winning, you know, there's, there's a momentum there and there's a comfort there. 
and there's a certainty there. And you do want to build certainty within your program. Certainty and stability are sort of synonymous with good recruiting. That's why I always going out of state when you don't have that stability in your coaching staff. I always rolled my eyes when Clay Elton's coaching staff, they're going out to Texas, they're going out to Florida, they're going back east, they're going anywhere out of state and trying to recruit good players. Even they're going out there and they're going head-to-head against Texas Tech, whatever. Okay, yeah, sure, you might have a chance there. But when you're going after the big boys and you know you got Texas A&M there and LSU and Oklahoma, you're not going to stand a chance with the program where people are talking about how the head coach could be fired next season and you haven't developed anybody. You have to build that sort of stability and that certainty because these kids are not going to go cross country and then all of a sudden, oh, well, there you goes your old coaching staff. Yeah, sorry, kid. I know you thought this was the scheme we were running, but we're changing it completely. I mean, that's basically what's created the transfer portal just in recent years. Gerard, my final observation I did want to make about the guys I saw on the sideline being one of the commits, Hayden Treader, is that I saw him up close for the first time. This is my first time seeing him in person, uh, listed at six foot six. I got to say, I was impressed by his build. I was impressed just looking at him like, okay, that's the guy. Like you, you pick out, you put a bunch of linemen. He looked like a college guy already, just stalking the sidelines. And I did say I got major Andrew Voorhees vibes from him as, you know, a guy who could play inside. I believe he's listed as an interior lineman prospect, but does, no, he actually plays guard. Excuse me. He's listed as a tackle, but he actually plays guard. But he plays guard. But looking at him, I got Andrew Voorhees vibes from him. Just that big upper body, giant kind of midsection. Not not saying he's like uh, bad bad weight fat kind. He just has a big, powerful uh, stomach on him and a big upper body. And I just got you. You've seen Andrew Voorhees up close. That's kind of the vibe I got looking at uh, Hayden on the sideline. Well. The ultimate test as to whether that is factual or not is, did he have a big head? (laughs) Did he have an OJ Simpson size head? Because that's sort of was always the differentiation between guys like Crystal Dowd and Andrew Voorhees. Like there's some linemen that are proportionately like they are just big people and it's frame wise. And it's like, you, it's it's I don't know how to explain it, but you're like that guy is built really solid. I mean, and he's got a big head, and it's just not. It's just it's it's out of the ordinary. Was he like that, or was he more like an Elijah Page, where he's like he's a big guy? Yeah, he's a big guy. He's you know he's, he's proportionate, but is he like just monster big? Wait, are you asking me if he has an elephant head? No. <laughs> No, I'm really that, dis- I'm really disappointed our old soundboard broke. Yeah, I was gonna hat. say, did you I was waiting for that to actually Yeah, I, I I don't have that sound clip because the old iPad got destroyed, so I lost every sound clip I had in there and I haven't re-uploaded it and I took a lot of time to go back and find that interview and clip it up, but I'm sorry, I do not have my head like an elephant. I don't got, have my got, head, like got, an got, head like an elephant. Head like an elephant. He's a big horse. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I don't have that clip, unfortunately. But I wouldn't say he was monster big, and I wasn't really looking at his head, to be honest. But he was what a were big. You looking at then, huh? He was a big individual. I didn't know. I didn't know. I had to look at the head. I didn't know I had to look at El. Uh, El I almost said elephant head. I didn't know I had to look at lineman head to to judge. You know. It's 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 not like it, but that's like the first thing you go. Oh man, he's 
like the frame is it's just bigger like it's not you know he's big because he's you know taller or because he's 340 it's like you can have a lineman who's 350 pounds and 65 and proportionately just in terms of frame completely different than a guy who's exactly say maybe even shorter you know even a little shorter a guy that's you know like 64 315 pounds it's just about you know the, the the bone density and the structure and you're like some guys just really stand out as like they're just different they're just literally literally built different and so that with with Andrew Voorhees that was the thing that stood out to me when we went to go see him at uh was it I think it was the Palo Alto Nike camp when we were still having Nike camps it might have been called the opening at that point but I think it was still the Palo Alto Nike camp, but it was not at Stanford because at that point the NCAA had already said that we can't have camps at colleges. So it was up at, I think some junior college and I was there super early and Andrew Voorhees, you know, showed up for uh, the registration. And I think at that point, everybody was, it wasn't like it is now where, you know, Under Armour and, and the opening where they have position by position, you know, you'll have the linemen and the defensive linemen show up early and then they're in and out by the time, you know, the quarterbacks show up. I think then everybody was showing up early. And so Andrew Voorhees showed up and Greg was there and Greg Biggins interviewed him. And I was like, that dude is like big. I can't, I didn't know he was that big. And again, it wasn't because he was 6'7". He was 6'4", 6'5", but he was just bone structure, frame, built differently. And, the, and, his, and how big of a head he has. I mean, like what size hat did he wear? I guess would be the more uh, tactful way of saying it. Um, but people used to always say that about O.J. Simpson, too. They were like, you know, he was a big running back. But he also, like, he had a, like, a big head for a running back because he was not just – six one you know six two he was a big guy like proportionately he just was bigger and um crystal down was another guy like that there's just been certain players you see uh, again proportionately that just their frames are bigger and nine times out of ten those guys have been really good football players it's just um i think you know durability and and what have you i'm sure there's like some tests that you could do in terms of bone density and frame and what have you um that come down to that but uh, you sounds like that- you're saying Nike camp has to start doing a bone density test and head <laughs> head measuring as head part of measuring. their uh, evaluations. I mean, listen, the NFL combine um, might even do that. I don't know if they list that, but they list hand size. <laughs> they let, you know, everybody talks about skinny ankles. I remember um, <laughs> I was at one of the USC rising stars camp and I was in heritage hall and I'd gotten lunch and it was the lunch break. And I was sitting inside there because at that point we could go in the coaches' offices and I knew all the coaches, so they were cool. And so there was like kind of a lounge area. And some of the high school coaches that were there helping out were, were there. And we were all just kind of talking. And I was eating my sandwich. And Nick Holt, who was – I believe he was the defensive line coach at that point. He might have been coaching linebackers because Sweaty Watson might have been the defensive line coach. But anyways, they came out of the war room there and they're arguing – about a linebacker who ended up committing to Florida, came out here from New Jersey. Everybody was like, he's the next Brian Cushing, which he was not the next Brian Cushing. And I was very adamant about that. Freaking Brian Cushing is bringing back punts. 
uh, and playing wide receiver as well as just completely decapitating people as a uh, safety and a linebacker. Um, they're arguing about his hand size and, you know, how long his arms were. And he just has small hands. And uh, he had, you know, really small hands. And just Nick Holt did not like that he had really small hands. And that was like a whole thing. And I I kind of took that was like, okay, well, what, what, what is that? And I, I'm, I've known that about like short arms with centers, you know, all that kind of stuff, man. It's It kind of bleeds down from the NFL because that's where you get those measurements and you get that scrutiny. And man, let me tell you, they're all over it. Like, you know, they're over it psychologically, but they're all over it physically. And they want to know all kinds of measurements. They're trying to make a science out of it as much as they possibly can. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You're looking for consistency. If you can find that sort of thing that it's like, oh, we found like, you know, 90% of the players that we have on our team that have this trait have been good players for us. Then you can sort of try to reproduce that in the draft when you draft those players. So that's what they're always looking for. So, um, you know, it tr and it trickles down. And unfortunately, with the high school level, it's gotten worse and worse in terms of the amount of evaluation that there is to be done. You know, we don't have these big camps anymore. Uh, you have the Under Armour camp, which is okay. I mean, it's it's good. I, I, I think it's a good camp and it's run really well. But it's like one camp and the, the, the testing in terms of like 40s, they don't really give you that. There's not college coaches at those anymore. There used to be college coaches at the Nike camps. I mean, I think everybody has, has had to take a step back a bit from the amount of evaluations uh, in terms of like the real numbers that we get over the years. It's just harder and harder to find. And so, you know, now you have NIL. And this is what I think is going to change the game a little bit. It's, it's not going to be very long before some of these millionaires are blowing their money on players with NIL and they're losing it. And then it's going to be like, you know, we need to do some things here. We need to have some avenues, whether it's with the camps that these, uh, these schools are, are holding, which, you know, at USC, there's just not a lot of guys that are scholarship offer recipients that are showing up to the camp. They had three elite camps, all young guys, all young guys. And they're getting, you know, they're getting times on some of these kids and they are getting weights and they're getting heights. But I think with the NIL era, you might see where there's going to be like some push to where they can actually pay kids to come in or something to get more of these guys on campus. So they can actually, if they're going to invest their millions into these players, they can do it more like the NFL does. So there's a little more certainty. There's a little bit more there you can say oh, he really is that fast, or oh, he really is that taller. Oh, you know, he has that wingspan. Something that you can sort of put tangibly into an evaluation to say, all right, we're going to give this guy, you know, the majority of our NIL numbers. Because right now it's a lot of evaluation in the dark. It's a lot of, you know, huddle film and and, and watching game film, which is, which is great and all. But, you know, I, I think the in-person evaluation, it's hard to beat it. The Elephant Man reportedly had a 36-inch head circumference. So you're telling me he would have been an All-American? That's an absolute slur because, you know, the Elephant Man had a deformity, and that's wrong. That's making that – I mean, and that wasn't what Clay Helton said. He didn't call him the Elephant Man, but he said his head was as big as an elephant, and you make that correlation immediately. So that was why it was – a very obtuse, very sort of out of touch comparison to make. 
you know, you just you don't want to do that necessarily. It just, you know, he's, he's, he, he can wear, um, I don't know, like a 10 gallon hat. So you have to make you have to go with some other sort of comparison there, illustration, uh, which would uh, have made it a little better. But, yeah, I think it's just amount of frame bone structure. That's what you're talking about. And if a guy's got that, you know, you're going to have some good physicality to go with it. You can put a lot of weight on a guy like that. That guy's going to be naturally strong. Gerard, let's move into our final topic before we take our break. And I'm actually going to combine a topic that we had for after the break into this because they kind of play into each other. But we we wanted to talk about uh, five-star modern-day defensive tackle Aiden Breland leaving USC off his top three. And we actually had a peristyle question come in that uh, you put on the you put on the docket. So I'm going to let you kind of lead the way on this peristyle question because I actually don't have the question in front of me. So I assume you do. <laughs> I don't. Um, but I remember what the question was. And the okay. gist of the question was, hey, two-star composite guys, Cilantro Brothers, recruiting linemen is a big deal. We're seeing the dividends being paid off with the transfer portal. And USC completely upgrading their defensive line with better athletes than they had last year. What does the defensive line look like in the future? In terms of the players that USC is going to lose, what does the room look like up front? And what does it look like on their recruiting trail for potential high school defensive linemen, particularly interior defensive linemen? Thanks. Can't remember who posted it. But they did ask us to put it on the podcast. So, you know, looking at the room right now as it stands. Now, this is difficult to do. This is the the transfer portal era. And we always talk about transfer portal as you go into it to try to recruit players out of it. But you also have to know that you're going to have players that are potentially going to jump in it. And you're going to lose guys into the portal. So that's really hard to project. You know, um, there's guys at wide receiver, I think, at the end of last year who we wouldn't have thought would jump into the transfer portal. Dorian Singer. Say that again. Dorian Singer. No, see, you're thinking the wrong way again. You're thinking going downstream. I'm talking about going upstream. I'm talking about guys leaving the program, a guy like maybe C.J. Williams, who, you know, nobody really thought was you know only a freshman. He did get some playing time, even Kyle Ford to some extent because he got pretty good amount of playing time towards the end of the year. He leaves USC. So now USC is like, okay, we, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to look and see if we're going to bring in more guys. Uh, they did get Dorian Singer, obviously, and they've shown that they've been able to go in to the transfer portal and get some good receivers. You know, Jordan Addison, obviously um, Brennan Rice is another guy they got even before Jordan Addison. So, you know, the receiver position with the offense, that seems like you're going to be able to potentially upgrade that, uh, regardless of whether there are some potential surprises in the depth chart where guys leave. Um, but that does, in general, on your roster, make it difficult to project in terms of need, numbers. And that's why I kind of feel like when it came to offensive line and how USC approached it during the summer, this whole, like, we're only going to take four and only four Man, take whoever wants to come. If it's a guy that you feel can contribute and is a good player and you like, if it's six, fine, six. It'll figure itself out by the time you get to signing day. I don't think you should be turning anybody away uh, in June, um, you know, when it comes to the high school ranks. And so, you know, looking at the room, 
Um, you're going to lose Solomon Tuliapupu. I mean, he's out with a season-ending injury again. Um, he is a senior, and I don't know if there's, you know, maybe another medical Lincoln waiver. Riley kind of alluded to having him next year, hoping to have yeah. him Yeah, yeah. So, so that kind of remains up in the air. Jack Sullivan, uh, you're going to lose to graduation. Um, we'll see what happens with Corey Foreman. I wouldn't be shocked, you know, if he transferred. Um, out of USC. Uh, Dijon Benton is a uh, junior, um, you know, eligibility-wise. Uh, Tyron Telene, uh, you will have gone. He's going to graduate. He'll be out. Chiron uh, Bars is going to be gone. He's going to be a senior. He will uh, uh, more likely be out after the year. Uh, Stanley Ta'afu, I believe, is a junior eligibility-wise. Um so he could potentially come back another year. Uh, Kobe Pepe has been in the transfer portal and then come out of the transfer portal. Um, did play a little bit at the end of the game uh, last uh, week. So we'll see what happens there if he wants to make another jump in there just to see um, if he can potentially get picked up. Um, so you, you, you do have like three or four guys there that could be gone after next season, right? So, you know, these are majority interior type of defensive linemen. Now, Solomon Tulia-Pupu, he was playing more of a five technique. Um, Jack Sullivan has played five technique. He's also played three technique. Seems like he's playing more inside right now than he's playing outside. And, of course, Kobe Pepe is an interior guy, as is Dijon Benton. So you do want to bolster your numbers a little bit more, and you have to look at, um, portal versus uh, the recruiting trail. And in the recruiting trail right now, there's not a whole lot of names to mention. There are not a lot of guys out there, not a lot of guys who officially visited USC last summer. We saw that in the 2023 class. There just weren't enough options there. There weren't enough names to say, okay, you know, uh, you know, USC's got this guy and that guy, and if they don't get this guy, then it was it was Edgar Kill, and there was like really no other um, interior defensive lineman, unless you looked at Mateo Uyunglele as a potential interior defensive lineman. So this past summer, kind of the same thing. You kind of have um, the same results. You know, yet Edric Houston came in during May. He's committed to Ohio State. And I think USC was probably third on that list and maybe kind of lower down third on that list. So you wouldn't think that they would have the ability to kind of pivot and stay in that one. I mean, I think it really comes down to Aiden Breeland and Jericho Johnson. Now, Aiden Breeland just recently put out a, I believe it's a top three and not a final top three. three. Top three, yeah. So you've got Georgia, you've got Miami, and you've got Oregon. And I believe he visits Georgia this weekend, if I recall. He's got a bye, uh, modern days at a bye. And that's unfortunate because, you know, USC could have a game and it would be an easier trip obviously to go to the Coliseum and watch USC play this week, but he's going across country to visit Georgia again. So as I alluded to, that was your Midlothian voice almost. He's visited several of these out of state schools more than he's even been on campus at USC. So while he can do an interview with Jordan Campbell, who runs WCA and, you know, USC is the first school out of his mouth. It doesn't seem like USC is a school that he's really seriously considering. And they got to get him on campus 
for him to seriously consider them. So that's where it stands with Aiden Breland right now. The argument that, you know, you would use to sort of cope with losing Aiden Breland, because on paper, he's the guy that you have to get. He's a must get on paper. You know, he's 6'5", 285 pounds, probably closer to about 6'3", maybe 6'4", 285. He's actually lost a little bit of weight over the years. He he was over 300 pounds. He's actually slimmed down a bit. And he's a five-star. So interior defensive lineman five-star out of modern day, which, you know, traditionally, if we're looking at this long-term, is a pipeline school for USC in Orange County. Uh, My opinion is to counter, you know, that argument of him being a must-get production-wise, when you actually watch the film and you see what he's done for modern day, is he actually a must-get? I would argue that Ellis McCarthy was a more impactful player at the high school level than Aiden Breland has been. Now, counter-argument to that. Aiden Breland plays for Modern Day. Modern Day has really good players all around. Modern Day has players on that defensive line that have been more impactful uh, early this season and, and really last season than Aiden Breland has been. Whereas Elton McCarthy was kind of the guy at Monrovia, playing against teams that you know he could just dominate. Uh, but he was definitely more dominant at the high school level. So the copium argument is, yeah, Aiden Breland is a five-star, but he's overrated. And he really hasn't produced like that. He hasn't shown like that. And we've seen him multiple times in person. And I I can say, yeah, he hasn't necessarily been a guy who's been a game changer. You know, he's kind of dealing with double teams and trying to figure it out. But he hasn't necessarily uh, been able to dominate despite. I mean, look at it this way. Bear Alexander is seeing tons of double teams right now, right? He is still making a huge impact on the game. He's splitting those double teams. And even though if he's not making the sack or the tackle for loss, because on the stat sheet, he's, you know, getting like two tackles a game. But if you actually watch the game, he is chasing the quarterback off their spot routinely. He is causing redirections in the run game routinely. He is clearly causing schematic issues within the interior line routinely. And the rest of the defensive line is being, they've started to figure out we can kind of play off this guy. You know, there's, there's started to be a little more awareness as to, oh, so Bear can do this consistently. Well, that's going to enable me to do this. So I need to be here. We always talk about camaraderie and chemistry on the offensive line and guys communicating, which is very important. But on the defensive line, well, there's not as much communication and there's not as much in terms of calls going on. There is a, such a thing as spatial relationship and a, a group of guys just kind of knowing what each other can do in terms of ability. And I think the rest of the defensive line, now that they've watched film of Bear play and they've seen what he's been able to do, they're kind of going, oh, okay. So he's going to get upfield that quick. I need to be with my head on a swivel, underfilling maybe the gap that he will leave because he's going to get upfield quick, right? And we got to be more aware with screens now. There's, there's certain things, even from a coaching standpoint, I'm sure uh, Sean Newland and Alex Grinch are looking at and going, okay, he can be that guy, and he really can get up feel quickly. And so we have to be aware, and we have to make sure everybody else understands sort of their 
their their discipline, the lanes, and just like kickoff team, you know, you you got to have that spatial relationship with the guy next to you. And, you know, one guy has to, you know, make sure that he's in line with the other guy or else you're just going down there and there's, you know, these big lanes that you open up on the return game. Well, it can be similar with pass protection and pass rush. You know, you don't want to open up these big lanes. So nevertheless, Barry Alexander's getting double teamed. He's still making an impact in the game. Haven't seen that necessarily a whole lot with Aiden Breland. So that's the copium sort of argument against Aiden Breland. But again, you know, from a statement standpoint, it's not a good look. USC loses a five-star interior defensive lineman who's rated as, you know, the best player in the state or not one of the best players in the state. And that is where you need to improve the most if you're USC. Now, outside of that, Jericho Johnson up in Fairfield, four-star. It's right now still a West Coast battle. It's still Oregon. It's still Washington. It's still USC. USC has the ability to win on the field against those teams, which would help greatly in his recruitment. I'm not saying that, you know, that's going to be the thing that's going to land him, but it definitely would help to go up and beat Oregon at Oregon and to beat Washington State at home, or excuse me, Washington at home. Maybe you bring him down for an official visit for that game. That would be helpful <laughs> to beat Washington in front of him, you know, in a, in a full house, USC is undefeated. I mean, that would be big. So, you know, these are things where I, I think they're still very, very much in it with Jericho Johnson. I, I think that there's still some optimism there with Jericho Johnson. Um, my vibe is I think, you know, he's been to Washington lately. He's been to the other schools a little more. And I think he's only been down here once or maybe twice. I, I can't remember if he's been down here twice, but I know he was down here once and he raved about the visit. He has a really good relationship with Sean Nua. Um, but that's in terms of like headliner type guys right now. That's only other guy that's on the board at the high school ranks. There's not a lot of other dudes that are going to be marquee type names that, you know, USC fans will know. Granted, Elijah Hughes wasn't necessarily a household name. You know, uh, Dejan Lafitte, not necessarily a household name. We haven't seen a whole lot of Dejan Lafitte, but we don't know, we what, he, have, we don't know what he's got, baby. We don't know what yeah, he's we don't, got We yet. don't got what he's got yet, but we have seen Elijah Hughes, and Elijah Hughes looks as good as advertised. Elijah Hughes has done some of the things he's done on film at the high school level against Division one competition. So that's always good to see. And so, you know, USC from an evaluation standpoint, you know, this is another thing. This is this is really the bigger thing is that, you know, Aiden Breland's and Ellis McCarthy's, you know, you'll get those guys every maybe three or four years in Southern California. You know, they're just not a lot of those bodies around. So regardless of what happens with those guys, you're going to have to find three stars that are good players. You're going to have to find the Alani Noahs on the offensive line and the Alani Noahs on the defensive line. You better find those type of players. You better be able to project. You better be able to bring in a guy who's 240, 250, put the weight on him, and then bring him along and develop him because that will be as important, if not more important, than bringing in you know a five-star high school guy. I mean, it's great if you can get a Leonard uh, Williams, who wasn't even a five-star guy coming out of high school. He was a 250, 255-pound guy coming out of high school. But nevertheless, you know, a, a big name, uh, a guy that you're bringing in from Florida, you know, it's sort of one of those flashy, sexy, like, okay, yeah, you know, everybody kind of knows the recruitment and the battle that goes on and that sort of whole soap opera with high school recruits and you recruit them and, and you end up getting that you know, sort of signing day last minute against the local team uh, type of uh, commit, you know, and that's why 
People are still interested in to see what happens with Corey Foreman. People still interested to see what happens with Damani Jackson. Those are guys that were household names as recruits locally that USC won those battles. So people get a little emotionally invested wanting to root for those kids and see those kids do well. And they also know being recruit Knicks that it helps recruit on the back end because Damani Jackson, Corey Foreman, like recruits that were kids coming out of the Pop Warner ranks coming out of OC Buckeyes, coming out of IE Ducks, they looked up to those guys, you know, talking to uh, Philip Bell about uh, Zach Branch. And, you know, he was like, yeah, that's kind of Zach Branch. That's what he does. You know, he wasn't like super blown away because he's seen Zach Branch play and he's looked up to him and he's and he's watched him. And so you want to see those guys succeed at USC because that's the expectation of those young guys, those recruits. And when those guys don't excel like that, then they're a little bit questioning, you know, the player development. And again, whether that is fair or not, because I think in some instances, hey, it's on the player. And in other instances, maybe it is on the coaching staff. Um, so, yeah, I think with um, USC and defensive line, there's definitely because of how some of these guys have performed early in the season. I mean, Barry Alexander specifically, it does make you optimistic potentially you could pluck another one of those guys out of the portal and it would be uh, that much more impactful. You know, if you can get for a key bars, say he, he graduates, you're able to get another guy out of the sec and, you know, go back into that honey hole. That is Texas A&M university, right? The, it seems like there's a plenty of very talented defensive linemen that go to Texas A&M and they have some issues. I mean, Shamar Turner, who is a, a young guy for them, who I think he led them in sacks or was leading them in sacks this season, he yeah. gets in trouble. Um, Micah Tease actually got in trouble uh, for uh, a drug charge, I believe, early in the season. He was a guy that USC was kind of tinkering with a little bit out of Tulsa um, and ended up committing to Texas A&M. You've got guys like DJ Hicks. Hasn't done a whole lot this season for Texas A&M. Uh, Malik Saila, another guy out of Katy High School, uh, hasn't done a whole lot for Texas. So, you know, those guys you keep an eye on. You know, Georgia has Marvin Jones Jr., who USC recruited out of high school and and made some moves with, but uh, weren't able to get him. Um, everybody talks about Mikhail Williams out of Georgia, who was committed to USC at one point. Now, when he was committed to USC, he is the half-brother of Mike Trigg, and Mike Trigg was at USC. So that connection is no longer there. But he hasn't actually done quite as much as you think he would have done. There was some talk about him last year. He did have a sack in a national championship game. But he actually, seeing the dogs that uh, the dogs are playing early this season, their schedule is kind of a joke, um, not doing a whole lot, actually, um, interestingly enough. Jordan Hall went to Georgia. I haven't seen much on him. Um, he was a guy that USC was recruiting and kind of was going to take an official visit. Then it didn't happen. And then basically they just shut it down. A lot of people thought he was going to go to Florida State. He'd end up at Georgia. So, you know, there's guys that USC has those relationships with. And again, that's kind of what we talked about when Edric Houston officially visited USC in May. It was a little bit of a, yeah, really? Does USC have a chance? I mean, they've had zero for zero. Um trying to recruit guys out of Buford. I mean, the ratio of success there has been extremely low, just getting guys on campus from Buford. I mean, they probably 
uh, I'd say over the last, let's say, five years, probably had maybe 30 offers out to kids at Buford High School. And I don't know if they've only maybe gotten one or two. two. Yeah, maybe one or two that have actually uh, unofficially visited USC. So getting an official visit from Edward Houston was a bit of a shift. It's sort of a good sign. And we said then, you know what? This is uh, this is a long shot for USC. Uh, I expected him to actually go to Alabama. So I'm surprised that the crystal balls held and he actually did uh, commit to Ohio State. But, you know, if things don't work out at Ohio State for whatever reason, you have that relationship and you might be the first dial or excuse me, the first number that's dialed on speed dial. You know, they, that might be the first number that comes up and, uh, hey, you know, I want to take another official visit and check it out there. And we know with some of these marquee type of transfers, boy, you you got to be in there quick and you got to be in there early uh, or you're going to be completely out of it within the, 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 the span of 24 to 48 hours. I also just wanted to mention, because you you named, obviously, a lot of uh, good SEC schools that had some stock of a good stock of defensive linemen. But don't count out, you know, kind of the the turmoil that's going on in Michigan State and then them possibly having defensive linemen or defensive impact players leave through the transfer portal as well. Remember, to Mize Adele, who USC recruit, recruited out of the portal out of Texas A&M, actually chose Michigan State. And now they might be having a new coach next season. So, I mean, that's what it's looking like. But, yeah, they have a lot of talented-looking defensive linemen on the roster that USC might be looking at if they uh, decide to jump into the portal. I'm not really – I think there's a rule where if your coach gets fired, you have a 30-day window to jump in the portal. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I thought I saw that on social media. But look, yeah, but don't to, look, to, to interrupt you, I apologize. Do you not have to that's say okay. I, I've been talking I've been talking too much during this uh this, this <laughs> segment. Oh, 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 oh. Hey man, right now they're saying <laughs> let Gerard cook. Let Chris <laughs> I, I I let him cook. I didn't I went to, I left No, I, I just I, I but but I, I wanted I because I don't know uh, genuinely asking this question because I know one of the upsides to recruiting out of the transfer portal is that that's your only waiver year. You know, you get one year where you can play right away. Then you have to sit out unless you're going subdivision one level. Uh, because, and we'll say this hypothetically, because I don't know if if Mel Tecker is is going to get fired. There's there's been some back and forth on whether he was really in the wrong there. I, I don't know. I haven't kept up with it, you know, daily or hourly here. But uh, we've seen you know two different sides of the story here. But with that situation. Let's just say hypothetically, he is fired. D- does that all of a sudden change whether uh, a guy like Adele can play right away, or does he still have to sit out because he's already transferred once? Yeah, I, I I can't find anything that says that they would have to. Well, obviously, it says players whose head coaches are fired during the season will have an immediate 30-day window to enter the portal, allowing coaches to talk to them if there's a future spot on their roster. So that doesn't have anything to do with that eligibility. You can jump in the portal as many right. times as you it, want. It doesn't say anything about if they get a new season or anything, or another uh, free transfer, if you will. Um, maybe there's a hardship waiver. I don't know. Obviously, a lot of these things are weird in terms of uh, waivers for, for players in the NCAA. Very it's very, this is also very yes. new. This is yes. also... Literally, like they're making rules up kind of, you know, as we go along here. Right. So I was just say, like, if Mel Tucker's officially fired, uh, 
uh, in three weeks or something, they're, the window opens for people to jump into that window and, and they are eligible to talk uh, to coaches. So, you know, keep an eye out for, for that possibly and what may come of the Spartans and, and their season. So, yeah, so it's basically the- a, 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 a window that opens up specifically for them because there's two windows. Like somebody was saying, oh, this guy is, uh, you know, jumped into the portal. It's like you can't jump into the portal uh, transfer portal right now. There's no window to do that. You you can only do that in December and then you can do that in May. Um, but for, I guess, players whose coaches are fired, head coaches are fired. Uh, you have that ability to, for 30 days, you basically get your own personal window. Yes, you get your own little personal window to have communications uh, with with staff of other schools. What that yields huh. in terms of, uh, obviously, no one's jumping to USC's roster from Michigan State. That's, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I'm saying you're allowed at least to talk and maybe get your ducks in a row for after the season or something like that. But it'll be interesting. I, I don't. I don't. I can't remember a situation where a coach has been fired. Well, no, Herm Edwards was fired mid-season. I don't remember how that actually played out, but I do know there were some guys that did enter the portal uh, right after Herm was fired. Uh, the Markham brothers, I know, uh, entered. So, well, guys do announce on Twitter that they're transferring, sure. even though they're not in the portal. You know, I mean that that does happen as well in the portal window system just came out last year like it literally they didn't have portal windows before before that you could jump in there anytime and actually tell the school hey put me in the portal and then once you're in coach the, yeah once you're in the portal that's when other schools can can, talk, can contact you so that's why they wanted to restrict it to some point to where you know the contact from other schools can only happen at certain times but obviously with this 30-day personal pan pizza porthole window that they're giving kids because you know my coach left me and I'm sad. You know that that that's different. That's going to be uh, a sort of free for all for that school. I mean that really puts a lot of pressure. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean that puts a lot of pressure on that university to hold to make them higher. Yeah, yeah, well to make a higher like ASAP like this whole thing. It's just it's not good for football from that standpoint. And, and, you know, Lincoln Riley kind of talked about that in that interview he did uh, just recently where he was talking about leaving Oklahoma and how the scenario and the situation you're in as a coach nowadays is so much different than it's ever been because you've got your recruiting classes and you've got the early signing period and you've got the transfer portal and you've got guys that are going to leave and guys are going to come with you. And I mean, it's just so much more complicated uh, than it was in the past. And people are still looking at it under this, under this prism of, you know, 20 years ago. And it's like, that's not, that's not what's happening anymore. It basically gives you the opportunity to quote unquote tamper with guys who are still on a roster Essentially, yeah, like legally, you, legally, yes, legally, yes, <laughs> it's legal tampering because it's open and it doesn't matter. And obviously, we know stuff like this goes on behind the scenes, but it doesn't yeah. matter. You, you can get the portal uh, in, during the season, in the middle of the year, when the because uh, your coach is fired. So yeah, you you have so, to imagine like the that that's the very you know interesting aspect of all of this is that you know the, the, there are sharks circling the minute anything like this happens, you know, just the fact that he's in the headlines, he's probably got 
guys that have trainers that have high school coaches already reaching out, already reaching out to intermediaries and people that can convey interest and feel things out. And, you know, this will happen at other schools when you start losing games and, uh, you know, there's going to be inquiries and it's, um, not ethical, but it's not illegal either. You know, if it's high school coaches and trainers talking to each other and, you know, conveying messages, um, I, I, you know, I don't know the, the written bylaw in terms of, you know, contact. I mean, I believe it's direct contact. I don't think it's, you know, you, a high school coach or a trainer. I don't think that that's looked at as, um, you know, direct contact. Obviously if you called a parent or, or somebody that uh, had lived with that particular recruit, um, or that player that's now at another college that would be tampering. But, you know, when it comes to just, you know, I mean, even like the players that talk to each other, like, what are you going to do if you're the NCAA and, you know, somebody calls up, um, Caleb Williams, and because he played high school ball with Caleb Williams or he knows Caleb Williams or he knows another player on the team and says, hey, yo, yo, I'm, I'm thinking about Bolton. You know, I mean, do you think uh, there's a spot for me at USC? Like, what is Caleb Williams just not going to say that to anybody? He's just going to keep that a secret <laughs> until the porthole window opens like that. All of that that goes on is just, just makes it very tough. And, you know, all you can do is just try to win ball games and try to utilize these players as you promised and. Um, you know, hope they're successful because otherwise, yeah, the sharks are circling. Gerard, I think that's a good point or place to end the first half of the show as we go into our first break of the show. So when we come back, we're going to wrap up some other things like your Stanford recruiting angle, Friday Night Lights, and a look around college football, and of course, our listener questions. So we'll be right back after this break. <laughs> I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Still haven't been sued, baby. Gerard, how was your break? It was great. I'm looking forward to the next break because evidently that's the first break. Yeah, it's like the double buy. We'll see if they're the buy at the end of the season means anything. We'll see if the break at the end of the season, end of this episode means anything. Uh, Gerard, I did want to inform you that okay. I went to a tailgate uh, for the Saturday or Saturday, the Stanford game before met a lot of our fans, uh, composite two star recruit fans, and they are also IE natives. Or oh, nice. Yeah, and they uh, they said your. IE card is under review because you're not you're not messing with bakers. <laughs> that's not true. I know that's not true because I have actually asked people post podcast about that, and I got too many. Yeah, I mean, I went to bakers, but uh, not not you know. Oh yeah, man, you don't remember bakers? Oh, you never went to bakers? I didn't get any of that. And I asked a few people that are IE residents, born and bred. They are salt of the earth people from the Fontana steel mill. And none of them felt like uh, Baker's was like an IE staple necessarily. I think Bravo burger actually came up more often in conversation than Baker's. So, Hey, that's my retort. Okay. Clapping back. Hurricane. Coming back hard, coming back hard against Baker's and his ID card being under review. I love it. Let's get that going into the second half of the show. We ended talking about defensive linemen and kind of Aiden Breland. So I want to bridge into a new defensive lineman we want to talk about here for the top of the second half. That is USC made the top five for Miami, Florida, five-star defensive tackle Armand Blunt. Out of the 2025 class, he is the number two rated 2025 defensive lineman nationally. Like I said, a five-star in both the 24-7 sports composite and the 24-7 sports rankings. Had 30 tackles for a loss and 16 sacks in 11 games last season as a sophomore. Transferred from Dillard High School to Miami Central. Gerard has written here, NIL Central. Good one, Gerard. Again, this is his top schools, not a Final Five, but for USC to make the Final Five with Miami, Florida State, Ohio State, and I'm blanking on the last one. Maybe it's Oregon. I have to go back and check. I will get that for you. But USC in that Final Five, kind of like a little bit of a surprise. I know they offered him in the summer and the spring, but I wasn't really expecting USC to be – I wasn't really expecting him to be able to put a top five this early as a 2025, but there it was. USC was in there. Uh, Gerard has a very interesting note here at the bottom of our segment on Blunt. So, Gerard, I'll let you take it away. Or demoralizing update. Or demoralizing uh, factoid right here. Good luck. Good luck indeed. Basically, USC has no chance, Gerard. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I like how you... uh... You weren't really sure of the top five, and you just kind of threw Oregon in there. Why Why would that be, Chris? Is that Chris huh. and Trevino, or is huh. that Chris Trevino? 
It's Chris NIL Trevino. That's what the N stands for. NIL. The the interesting aspect is that now he's at Miami Central. Miami Central's actually gone after some guys. It's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma. Oh, is the other school involved with that? I knew it was an O school. (laughs) I knew it was an O school. And you just made assumptions, Chris. You made assumptions because he's at Miami Central, NIL Central. It's um, it's just interesting. Yeah, they plucked a couple guys out of California, uh, and one of which told me flat out, like, yeah, they they told me they're gonna like pay me nil money, which I don't know if that's legal. I don't think it is, but nevertheless, kind Who of knows? an odd, kind of an odd, you know, a public school in Miami. Again, maybe this is sort of like some, um, you know, five head, four D chess type of uh, nil thing that Miami's doing, and they're trying to get kids at Miami Central High School so they can recruit them out of Miami Central High School, kind of get a nil pipeline going, maybe, perhaps. Um, kind of doing, uh, you know, the IMG thing, but, you know, uh, maybe just um, for the Miami Hurricanes and uh, <laughs> not necessarily uh, IMG Academy, which is kind of on the back end more about the uh, sports agency standpoint. Um, so, yeah, not one that I'm necessarily optimistic about for USC. Hey, never say never. But uh, with the schools, top five, yada, 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 uh, not necessarily feeling it. And um, we'll have to see if Blunt actually gets out here uh, for a visit to USC, uh, which, um, you know, would obviously uh, you're not going to feel optimistic whatsoever if that doesn't happen. Yeah, definitely need to get him on campus. And that being five schools, yeah, you would hope he would get out here. For a game, and there's some big games on USC schedule moving forward. So maybe we'll see him out here, especially if has a little if he has a little NIL from NIL Central to get out here for a trip to Southern California. So we'll see, we'll see how that shakes out. I know we don't do a lot of top five lists on this show because you know they're top five lists, top schools lists. They're they're pretty unimportant, but I I just wanted to throw this one in here because it was a a relevant five star defensive lineman. So just wanted to put that. In there, Gerard, USC. Let's let's move on to actual football on the field. Stanford got their ass handed to them this weekend with USC playing maybe the best half of football we've seen under Lincoln Riley, putting on a 56 to 10 victory over the Cardinal in what might be the last game for quite some time. Definitely the last Pac-12 hope Pac-12 home opener for the Trojans. Moving on to the Big Ten, but you saw the game, you watched the game, just a lot of things to take away from, whether this it being the offense is maybe better than last year and a defensive front that is much better than last year having their way with the Cardinal. And again, it was the Stanford Cardinal. They are not expected to be a good team this year. But for USC to have a performance like that against a Power 5 school and a school that traditionally out- physical out physical them multiple times it was it was a nice treat for the fans to see them uh hitting on all cylinders in all three phases of the game yeah stanford's known for playing with intellectual brutality in the trenches and uh, i think i stated in the uh what we learned piece was that usc made those trenches their intellectual property uh, they Ooh. took them over and um really you know, this was one of the things that we wanted to kind of see when we talked about what 
we were looking for coming into the game. And it was physicality, you know, and Stanford's not the same team as they were. One thing we learned is that Stanford does not have an elite quarterback. And maybe the two quarterbacks they have, you know, are, are develop and they play a little better down the line. It seems like, and I think, you know, alluding to this, even in some of the previews that I read about Stanford, that was a pretty close competition. And sometimes you got two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. And I don't think either of those guys, I could see where they didn't really separate much from each other because they both kind of sort of played similar against USC. And neither of them are the type of quarterbacks that we've seen at Stanford in previous years. And while certainly Stanford was not the same team under David Shaw as it was with Jim Harbaugh, there's still some pretty high-level quarterback play. And you still had some players at receiver. You still had some tight ends. You know, there was some skill players there along with a good offensive line, again, sort of diminishing over the years with David Shaw, but the skill players were still there. And this team is not at that level. And so we have to put this into context and we do have to look at it objectively that I don't think for the first time in a long time, Stanford had a quarterback that could really threaten USC. And so there was really nothing they could do once USC established themselves on the defensive line that they weren't going to give up big runs and that they were going to be able to put on consistent pass pressure on the quarterback. And we've seen that through three games now. And now we have a bye. We can kind of look at this first three games and package them a bit into, okay, what are we seeing consistently? You know, not just within the Stanford game, but just as a whole package, which in the first three games of the season has shown us that the defensive front is better. It's far more athletic. It's more twitchy. And with Bear Alexander at a point where he could play three technique or he can be actually as, as a as a one-shade, zero technique, playing right over the summer, he is forcing double teams, and he is still being able to move the pocket with double teams. And that is a huge, huge step towards having a good defense. Most good defenses – that's kind of where it starts is in the middle. And if you don't have a disruptor in the middle, it's very difficult to sort of play around that. And so USC has that going for them. And I think, you know, this will be, as we get later in the season, something they can sell on the recruiting trail. I still think with Aiden Breeland, they're still going to have a shot with him. They got to get him on campus. We already talked about this. Same with Jericho Johnson and being able to sell, look at, Bears three and out. Kyron Bars is, is going to be probably gone after next season. We're showing you that it can be done, that it can be done with this scheme. It can be done with this coaches. The narrative out there negatively about USC is that Alex Grinch is fired. It's going to be a new coaching staff, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, it's just all offense, and they're only going to win so many games. And they'll be exciting offensively, but they're going to be a meme defensively. And right now, that is not the narrative. USC is changing that narrative. Uh, you've got a good, really kind of a front four, I think, developing. I, I feel like after the Stanford game, you know, Bear Alexander, Keon Bars, Jamil Muhammad, and Solomon Bird at the five technique, that is a very solid athletic 
line. It's not the best defensive run line. They there's still some work to be done there, but certainly as a pass rush line, consistently the ability to get upfield and with I think you know Solomon Bird and Jamil Muhammad, you have two guys that are very skilled pass rushers, meaning they have a little genesis qua to them when they're getting to the outside, when they're having to contain, they have the athleticism to be able to run down on the backside, whether it be the quarterback or a running back. And I think one of the most important things is when they get to that point of contact on the tackle, they have enough awareness to try to strip the ball. I mean, we've seen that with Solomon Bird already a few times, and they actually get the fumble recovery from Tackett Curtis in this game. And that's big. That's one of those flashy turnover highlights that goes on for the recruits. And USC just hasn't had a whole lot of that in the past. So now you got two guys back there, you know, and Solomon flashed last year and he kind of faded. He got a little, but he got a little kind of wore down. He had a couple little injuries here and there and he, he kind of disappeared. It seemed kind of towards the mid to end of the season. Um, the thing that USC has now is you can bring in Anthony Lucas behind him. And Anthony Lucas, again, I think more as a five technique, has a lot of promise. I think he's got to put on more of that weight. I think it's, you know, the whole I'm going to be 250 thing is not, I just not on board with that. I think he's got to be 275, 280. I think he's going to play similarly to how he is now, and he's just going to be that much stronger and bigger as a five technique, maybe potentially three technique, but to have him kind of as your six man coming off the bench um, is pretty, it's pretty big. I mean, a, it's pushing Solomon bird to go out there and make plays me consistent. And B when Solomon bird, you know, takes a bad fall or, or gets tired or whatever, you have another guy that you can put in there uh, that can, that can bring a pass rush. Uh, you've got Jack Sullivan there as well. Another big body who again, has been playing a little more on the interior, but now you kind of have a front. Now you kind of look like a defense that, you know, is a college football playoff defense. And so it's a matter of execution and playing like it and playing like it consistently, but it looks closer to what we expect when you start to get to that level. When you look at those past teams like an Alabama and a Clemson, and I know Clemson, you know, they lost against Duke or what have you, but when you're just looking at the eyeball test of the type of players they're putting out there, Ohio State, et cetera, this defensive line looks much closer to that. They could definitely still use a couple more pieces here, but they're they've made a big step forward. So, you know, that's the thing that we look back at these three games. We see that and we see how that is going to, you know, and again, is it going to be this cycle? Maybe it's the 2025 cycle. You're going to start to see where the good defensive players start to reference and they start to say, hey, that's a good defense. That's a good team now. You know, it's not just about the offense. It's not just about the quarterback position. They're developing their defensive guys, too. And, I, I mean, again, Bear Alexander, the name, the position. I mean, it's one of those things that it's, it, it's such a smart move for him leaving Georgia, coming to USC. It's a gamble because maybe, yeah, you do have a new coaching staff that comes in because they don't play well this year. But – I almost likened it to like Ed Ergeron here as a coach at USC. Ed Ergeron in the South is just another guy with the Southern accent. He, you know, he's a character and he, and he kind of separates himself, but 
he's not as loved and as admired and endeared as he is in Southern California because he stands out so much. And Barry Alexander with the name and being an interior defensive lineman, those guys grow on trees in the SEC. You're not that unique. You're not that special at Georgia and Alabama at even Tennessee Ole Miss as you are at USC where those type of players are just they're just so rare out here. So that in itself from a branding standpoint from a NIL this is all going to be good for Bear. And he's going to probably see a lot more because he's at USC and it's so unique. And I mean all you got to do is look at the peristyle and all they want to talk about is offensive tackles and defensive tackles. And I don't know if that's the case uh, as much with other fan bases and other message boards, you know, because they know, hey, we're going to get the quarterbacks, we're going to get the receivers. What we need, what we've got to find, what we got to work to find are the interior defensive linemen and those franchise type offensive tackles. So this is going to be something from a recruiting standpoint USC's got to use you know, this is like it's a Heisman campaign, but it's a Heisman campaign in terms of signing uh, defensive linemen out of high school or the portal. It's it's one of those things where you've got to hype it up. you got to use the hype train, and, and it's, it's more for the recruiting trail. You know, like we need to make sure that this is echoing on the recruiting trail. Look at Barry Alexander. Look at the, 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 the move that he's making. Um, USC should be giving away 90 jerseys. You know, the first, I don't know, a thousand fans that show up to a game or whatever, give them some 90 jerseys to sit up front to be able to show like, hey, we care about our defensive linemen here at USC. The defensive line, the wild bunch, this is the thing because you need to use every single angle you can to get more Bear Alexanders because he could very much be the difference um, just emblematically of USC being uh, a team that's like, you know, good in the Pac-12 from a team that's actually potentially going to be able to win games in the college football playoff. There's a big difference there. So I think that's one of those things that, you know, watching the Stanford game, seeing how they played, um, you know, seeing the front seven, I think that's a big deal. Obviously, when we're talking about the front seven, you're bringing in Ephraim Asiata, linebacker. He's watching the linebackers. He's watching the edge rushers. He plays more of an edge rusher uh, in high school. Um, you saw... Um, some blitzing, not as much blitzing. I think they were, you know, there was a little more conservative approach and, you know, I haven't really rewatched the game that intently, uh, at the linebacker position to see how much they blitzed and they actually counted out, but they've been kind of wild blitzing their inside linebackers first two games. And, you know, Taka Curtis is a young guy and he's just running around out there, taking some bad angles, just putting his head down too many times and not kind of realizing what's happening on the play and where he's got to be and taking himself out of some plays as Mason Cobb did in the first game. Um, this game, it seemed like they were a little more settled and they weren't throwing those guys at the line of scrimmage quite as much. And I just think in general playing dominating and being better uh, in the run game uh, specifically uh, that helps definitely sell the, you know, progression of the defense and trying to land your linebacker. So from that standpoint, I think that was really good. You know, again, selling him more on being a linebacker than being an edge guy. You know, you're not really trying to show edge guys. You're trying to show, hey, look at we are starting Tackett Curtis as a freshman. If you're a freshman, you can come in here 
you're going to play right away if you prove it in practice. And so that's, you know, been been obviously the drum that they're going to keep beating uh, when it comes to linebackers, you know, regardless of, of who they're recruiting. That's one of those things that you play freshman. You want every kid that's going to be a freshman next year to know that they have that opportunity if they put in the work and, you know, they can they can do it. They can they can uh, they can produce um, on the offensive side of the ball. You know, you kind of mentioned it earlier. 2005, USC offense, probably the best offense in modern-day history for USC. Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush, Lindell White, a team which had more stars and certainly was better, I think, across the board. Certainly the offensive line was better. But but we also kind of knew what to expect from that team because the two previous years, USC had been really good. So – you know, it's it's you're looking at it from a different perspective, this team as opposed to that team. The thing that's different and gives this team the advantage, I think, is really Caleb Williams. As good as Matt Leinert was, Caleb Williams is more of a playmaker and could do more things with the ball in his hands. And he has the ball in his hands every snap. You had Reggie Bush, you had Lendo White. USC doesn't have those running backs. Um, I do think Marshawn Lloyd does get them in that conversation, though, because Marshawn Lloyd showed a little extra in this game. And we hadn't really seen it. Uh, there's been some little flashes here and there, a little flash in the spring game where he, uh, he took a pass and he made some really good moves and what have you. But you know, now we're kind of seeing that he's a guy that's got a little more flair in the open field than Austin Jones and Travis Dye last year. So from that standpoint, I think the running back position has improved. You sprinkle in some Quentin Joyner, who's also showing some flashes as well. I think that you have an improved running back position with an incredible generational talent at quarterback. You have a deeper group of wide receivers than USC actually had uh, in 2005. Um, I don't know if you, you know, have that one guy that's sort of um, the marquee player like a Dwayne Jarrett. Um, you know, Steve Smith was pretty accomplished as well, even uh, that year. The thing that's different, though, in the passing game, uh, in addition to Caleb Williams, is the fact that I think this is just a better scheme from a passing standpoint. I, I, it's a very well thought out design and from what we've seen last season going into this season is guys are open by design you see things work whereas i feel like in the sarkishian era the uh sark lane kiffin era when those guys were split ocs and um you had sark as a quarterback coach for a while and you had uh, lane as the oc they had to really work sometimes even with the team is is you know, ridiculously talented as a 2005 offense with uh, Matt Liner coming back as a Heisman Trophy winner. You know, Reggie Bush being um, a guy that was a Heisman Trophy candidate. Um, there were just times where it just seemed like they really had to out-talent the other team. Schematically, it wasn't like guys were getting wide open. And with this offense, it just seems like there's going to be those plays where, like, how do you stop them? You know, just from a scheme standpoint, just from a play calling standpoint, it seems like Lincoln Riley is really locked in. He knows his quarterback. He knows his players. And you got guys like Tosh Washington there and, and Darian 
uh, Singer, who I think is another aspect of this game, which you're you're seeing that sort of um, you know connection mentally, that sort of sync that happens between a receiver and a quarterback, and and obviously Caleb had that a bit with Jordan Addison, but I think with you know Dorian because of the style of receiver he is, he's a very uh, good route runner, but he's he's a he's a 50-50 ball guy. Despite not being like the biggest guy in the world, he is a guy that will go up and he will make his quarterback look good. And I and I think after three games, and particularly after the Stanford game, where Caleb makes that just ridiculous, ridiculous throw run into the right and throws a strike in the back of the end zone to Dorian, you kind of get the sense like those guys are getting on the same page in those situations. And that's going to be huge because those situations happen a lot when you've got a Caleb Williams. And you can kind of move outside the pocket and you can extend the play. Your receivers have to get open. They have to sort of know where to be when. And the quarterback has to trust them. And I think that is starting to build a little bit. I felt like in the Stanford game, with that play and a couple other plays, you kind of feel like, okay, Caleb and Dorian, Caleb's going to kind of look for Dorian when things break down. And Dorian's going to figure out where to get to be open. And so that's another thing that, you know, USC's got to think about in the future, you know, can they find that, you know, is, is there a guy that can link up with Miller Moss that can, that can be that guy, which, you know, Miller can trust and can be that guy for Miller Miller, um, you know, from that standpoint, which is an interesting sort of evaluation that we've gotten, you know, second string quarterbacks for USC over gosh, man. I mean, even going back to the Pete Carroll era and you would think with the Pete Carroll era, they're, would have been plenty of instances where they're blowing teams out and the second string quarterback would have played, you know, a quarter or two. And that's not the case. I mean, he kept his first string quarterback in until the fourth quarter of every game. And until, you know, usually there was only a few minutes left in the game. They just didn't give the second string guy a lot of looks and it was detrimental in certain situations. You know, when you had, uh, John David Booty go down and they had to put Mark Sanchez in there and they could have gotten Mark more reps uh, earlier in the season. And they didn't. And that was really difficult for Mark to just jump in there with this Lincoln Riley. He's like, Hey, halftime, <laughs> Caleb, you're going to get a series. We're going to get away from the, the back of the end zone. And then we're going to put in Miller Moss and uh, Miller got two full quarters and he's had uh, some, some run in the previous games as well. And I think we've seen two things from Miller Moss. One, uh, he's running the ball better than I think a lot of people anticipated. And that definitely gives him a shot to be in the argument, uh, in my opinion, to take over for Caleb Williams next year. Because I've made it very clear, I think USC needs that dynamic in a quarterback. You have to be able to run the ball by design at least a few times a game to keep the defense honest in the run game. You can't do the Keaton Slovis, Clay Helton. We're going to run rush. Uh, we're going to run mesh read, but never actually run our quarterback. So Miller Moss actually running for those touchdowns and getting first downs. That's big. I think that's big for him to put on film, to show the coaching staff. And it's big for him to be able just to do, to stay in the conversation and to be a guy that people feel like, okay, he can run this offense and this offense can still be uh, high flying. It can still be prolific with him. At the same time, has he necessarily like blown us away or throw, you know shown that he can throw some of those crazy passes or, or done anything that's like 
okay, he's locked it up. Like he's the guy, he's locked it up. I say with the Stanford game, you get two quarters. I didn't see that. So I think there's still a decision to be made. I still think that there's a competition to be had, whether it's between Miller Moss and Malachi Nelson or Miller Moss, Malachi Nelson, and a transfer quarterback remains to be seen. But I will say that if USC is not confident, they're not 100% that Miller or Malachi is going to be the guy, you've got to go in that first portal after a transfer quarterback because that tends to be where the big names are. The guy that's going to be actually capable of competing for a starting job at USC is going to be in the first portal because he's going to want to participate in spring ball and be a part of that competition. If you're getting a guy after spring ball, it's going to be more of a depth stopgap type situation because you only have two guys on the roster that are scholarship quarterbacks because one of those guys leaves because they leave, they lose the competition during spring ball. I feel like you went for like 45 minutes there. I don't have the official counter on that, but I just like let you cook. Gerard. It's not what you know, it's what you can prove. It's what you can... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just needed a, some sort of distraction because uh, I wasn't expecting that from you. You didn't even mention uh, Zachariah Branch, Gerard. Another another special team score for him. Zachariah Branch is dictating how special teams kick the ball to USC, which is another big point in terms of defense. And if the defense can force punts, now you are forcing them to do one of two things. Kick to Zachariah Branch, which he has shown he will be a threat, particularly in the punt game, to bring it back. And that is a potential game-changing play. I mean, that can change the momentum of a game quickly as well as put seven points on the board quickly. Or you decide to give USC a free 15, 20 yards on a punt because you're kicking it out of bounds. So do you really want to give Caleb Williams and that offense a free 20 yards on every series? So it's a dilemma. It's a rock and a hard place. And that's what Zach Branch is giving you that they did not have last season. All right, Gerard, you talked a good amount of time during that segment. So why don't you... Lead us into Friday Night Lights, which I went to a game. And you can kind of uh, let me take over and talk a little bit. Friday Night Lights, St. John Bosco versus St. Francis. The fighting Sam Mean Greens visit (laughs) Bellflower, California. Chris Tavino was there, and he is a frequent there at Bellflower, California, St. John Bosco. um, Panic Stadium. Uh, a friend of the podcast, a friend of Ryan Abraham, actually. And you got to see St. Francis, who USC has offered a few scholarships to players at St. Francis, trying to build some type of pipeline into the Northeast. If you can't get into the South, maybe you go to the Northeast and try to grab some defensive linemen and some defensive backs against St. John Bosco, who is undefeated on the season, coming away from that big trip out there to St. Thomas Aquinas in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and beating the Raiders uh, out there in Florida, one of the better teams in Florida. So what did you get to see from St. John Bosco this week? And what did you get to see from some of the St. Francis players that USC is potentially trying to drum up some interest from? 
Here's the thing. Very interesting matchup. And St. John Bosco, obviously I'm there all the time, been covering them for a long time. I believe this is the fourth team that they've played from the Maryland area, including my alma mater, DeMatha. And I believe they are undefeated against all of those teams. And obviously I arrived and a lot of the uh, Bosco coaches were uh, were ribbing me a little bit. Like they better not see me rooting for uh, a Baltimore, Maryland team. And I was like, coach, I'm not here for that. I'm not here for that. I'm objective. So St. Francis, you know, St. Francis, a national powerhouse that's been built out of there, plays a national schedule like a Bosco, like a modern day, like an IMG. And they're playing all over the the nation. And unfortunately, the start of the season has not been it. They were 0-3 going into this game. They are 0-4 now after Bosco beat them 37-14. But they've played, they're playing everywhere this this season. They opened against Buford, Georgia, lost 18-0, played Shamada Mandana, Hollywood out of Hollywood, Florida, this team that has uh, Jeremiah Smith. They lost 35-14. I believe that was on ESPN. They played East St. Louis out there, which is a national, which is a regional and national kind of powerhouse there as well. Kind of similar background schools out of not so great neighborhoods that have built up a championship football program. They lost 13 to seven. That game went out to Bellflower, like I said, and they haven't played. Obviously, they haven't played a home game and they're actually going to Utah this week to play West out there in that the, in uh, West Salt Lake City in Utah. Then they come back, or actually, no, excuse me, I read that wrong. They are hosting Modern Day. So what I'm getting at is they play a national schedule, and it's 0-4 right now, so it's a tough start for the Panthers. But I figured out why they're 0-4, Gerard, seeing them. They can't move the ball. They have a a highly ranked quarterback, Michael Van Buren, Oregon commit, actually, and they just had – no real weapons on the offensive side of the ball. They had no big-time receiver that you know a defense will focus on or that can make plays for them. They didn't have you know kind of an elite running back where they could kind of pick up first downs and you know do some things with the ball and make plays in space. You know they had decent players, but they didn't have a guy to help out. And you know Bosco's strength is their defense, so they were able to take advantage of that and get to Van Buren, the O line. It's been a little banged up for, for St. Francis, and they lost one of their starters uh, in the first half to a knee injury. He actually re-injured his knee, actually hurt it in week one, so they were banged up, and they lost him, one of their big tackles. So it was just a hunting season for the Oregon Duck commit. Uh, Michael Van Buren, defense, uh, Bosco's defense, was uh, headhunting out there. But I will say their defense was scrappy. And, you know, Bosco's offense is hasn't been a world breaker to start the season. They've been good enough to to put up points. And, you know, Bosco's, excuse me, modern day, excuse me, St. Francis, Jesus. St. Francis's defense was uh, hanging around, you know, keeping the Bosco offense down. But, you know, just kept building and building and building. They kept, they couldn't get, they couldn't stay off the field with the offense not, not sustaining drives. So they were getting tired and you know, they just kept, uh, they just kept grinding away, and that Bosco offense was able to score. The big player that I wanted to go see was obviously uh, Trent Wilson, the uh, four-star defensive tackle that USC had offered 
out of St. Francis. But uh, unfortunately, he did not make the trip out. He's actually been hurt, so he did not make the trip out to uh, Bellflower. He was not on the team. So the main he's focus. A dude. He's, he's a dude. He is a dude. That's the words he's of. A, uh, he's the, a dude. JP five stars only, and I saw him at the five on five pylon, and he is a dude. They're probably saving him maybe for the modern day game. Maybe. I don't know what the injury is, but yeah, he's a dude. Well, I, I was I really was looking forward to seeing him because I went over there to watch their defensive line warm up and I didn't see that kind of guy. They had some guys with some interesting body types, but no one screamed like, oh, I'm the guy, which is obviously I know you and five stars only JP were were boasting him up when you guys saw him. So I, no one screamed that. Shout to out to like, five stars only. He's getting over being sick. Shout out to him. He's already on his way, ready to go to what, Mission Viejo, Los Alamitos this weekend. I'm like, bro, chill, <laughs> chill out, you know, Just relax, get better, man. Get better. Well, but you don't, you don't get to be five stars only with, you know, taking breaks, you know, that's, that's what I'm saying, but no Trent Wilson. That was disappointing. So I did get to focus on Jare Edwards, who is a cornerback safety play safety for uh, St. Francis. He's actually a transfer. Very interesting, a very similar path to Sam Green. Played out of Rock Creek Academy, which is the same school Sam Green played out before transferring to St. Francis. So Jare Edwards has taken the same path as Sam Green, and he's now at uh, St. Francis. Started for them at safety. You know, this is the first time seeing him was you know the the defense was overwhelmed by the by the you know end of the second quarter. Just kind of Bosco was running away with it, but he possesses great length. I liked what I saw. He was rocking the USC gloves. You know, uh, St. Francis did take a visit as a team to USC during the week. So they were up there, got a visit. So I will have an update on Jare as far as, you know, talking to him. And he really likes USC after this visit. You know, they, Roy Manning is his area recruiter for that DMV East Coast area. So it seems like he's building a relationship with them. You know, he's got a relationship with Sam Green, you know, was has a relationship with Caleb Williams. He's met him a couple times back home. So, you know, that DMV pipeline still going strong in terms of, you know, getting kids aware of that. But Dre Edwards, you know, really long, tall, you know, maybe pushing six foot two, uh, kind of thin, not thin, but, you know, kind of a lanky to an extent, but a, a good build. Uh, so I like what I saw from him. But again, they were just getting beat all over the field. Uh, with that offense, they couldn't really stop him. And then obviously, Marcellus Williams kind of locked it down for his side of the ball when you know the, the defensive front was getting all their pressure on Michael Van Buren. Had an interception, which is kind of like a uh, there was no receiver really close to him, so it was either a, a, wrong, a wrong route run by the receiver or Van Buren was just under so much pressure he just kind of threw it away. And Marcellus was there, so it was cool to see Marcellus get an interception on Friday and then older brother Max get one on Saturday. So those were kind of my main points from watching this game. And my final one actually is that despite St. Francis, you know, getting their butts kicked for most of the night, that defense was hitting Gerard. That those Panthers were laying their hats on those St. Bosco uh Braves. I, I mean Bosco won, but I tell you they were feeling it the next day. I counted at least four hits that probably would have been considered helmet to helmet on a Saturday. 
especially in the Pac-12, where everything is a helmet-to-helmet. Everything yeah, it was, it was It was a violent game, I'll tell you that. The, the... Can I play Parastyler for a minute? Uh, sure. I want to know, did you really watch or get to see, outside of Edwards, much of Adris Farouk? Or Blake Woodby. Blake Woodby, USC is recruiting, and they're trying to get a visit from. Uh, Adris Farouk was a guy that, you know, Sam Green had told me he was coming out uh, with, I believe, Woodby at one point for an unofficial visit during homecoming, and then it just never happened. And, you know, USC never got that group together that were all coming in on an unofficial visit from St. Francis. But Farouk, he's committed to Tennessee, safety. I liked what I saw from him on film. He's uh, kind of a three-star, not necessarily ranked real high, but I thought that was a little bit of a steal for Tennessee. And uh, Blake Woodby is a guy that's going to be, you know, one of their top players in the 2025 class. Either of those guys jump out at you? Not really. I think uh, Woodby was actually hurt. There was a guy who looked like him that was out. He was kind of working the uh, sound system, and it looks very much like Woodby. Uh, but no, I didn't really – I was kind of focused on Jure Edwards and another player in the middle, number 50, uh, Jaden Trevor Tra- Travers, who was a defensive tackle. He's a sophomore, six foot four, listed at 260 pounds. He looked like a giant-sized linebacker playing defensive tackle. He was huge. And he doesn't have a 247 profile. I don't think anyone knows about this kid which is kind of weird because St. Francis, they have a lot of national guys. So maybe become somebody, but he was actually an impressive looking dude. But no, I did not really see Woodby. I think, again, I think he was hurt and I did not notice uh, Edris. Mm, good deal. Good deal. Well, we'll have to see going forward how St. Francis plays against modern day, modern day, uh, you know, projected as the top team in Southern California. So 37, the 14 loss, uh, modern day has uh, shown that they can be beaten, perhaps. But if they put it all together, that's a tough team uh, to, to be able to beat. You're going to have to get them on an off night. But uh, that's it for Friday Night Lights. Now we can look forward to the week two, um, a week off for USC. But uh, not the huge games that uh, we're going to uh, review um, looking uh, back here at uh, Colorado, uh, going into Nebraska after their big win against ten, uh, TCU, Oregon, Utah, kind of surviving on the road in Texas, uh, trying to get some exposure in Texas and almost lost in Texas, both of those teams, and Miami um, kind of getting blown out, or excuse me, uh, kind of blowing out Texas A&M. Uh, it was a game that ended up being 48-33, but it Got a little bad at the end. Uh, there was uh, looks like uh, you know uh, Texas A&M was was uh, really kind of hanging on to keep the score res- respectable there at the end. And um, looking at that recruiting impact, Colorado continues to make you look like a dummy, Chris. They're making you look bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I crow for another week, but again, Nebraska probably could have made that game much closer or even won that game. Had they had a quarterback, Gerard, that's all I'm going to say. They needed a Martinez. That's what everybody's saying. They need (laughs) another Martinez, another Taylor Martinez, who, by the way, has a, I think it's his brother, who's at uh, Citrus Valley 
up there in Redlands and I saw them play against Mission Viejo. He was hurt, or he was out. Um, I think he has to sit out the first five games of the season. Uh, but there is another uh, Martinez spawn that is coming through the pipeline. So Nebraska fans, Husker fans, you guys better get on it. Uh, if you want to have a quarterback that's going to be competitive against USC in the future. Yeah, definitely. So we'll see how Colorado moves forward. They have Colorado State this week, and then they have the big one with Oregon in two weeks, setting up for that uh, big USC game at home in a couple uh, a week after that, which is already sold out. So it's going to be an electric atmosphere. So excited to see what that what yields and what Colorado does these next two weeks. Yeah, the uh, Oregon matchup down there at Texas Tech. Oregon scores, what was it, 340 points? Look, they against, probably should have uh, lost Portland that game. State. They probably and should have lost that game. They have uh, one of those games that they had against Washington State last year that they mm-hmm, should have lost mm-hmm. and make the comeback and um, you know look like a totally different team. You see what happens when you actually play Power 5 teams? The difference between that and uh, you know UC Davis and uh, Portland State, um, a little bit different. But you know what? Crazy things happen in Lubbock, so maybe it was just – one of those games in a in a weird stadium, you know, uh, Texas Tech kind of has that reputation in the Big 12 as being a sort of Oregon State type of team that you kind of, you know, don't know what you're getting when you're going out there. And it's, uh, you know, it's um, just a unique place to play. And so, uh, yeah, Oregon did not look great. Uh, they looked more like, you know, the Oregon offense that we saw last season, you know, Bo. Nick's uh, not a Heisman Trophy candidate quarterback. Um, now, they didn't lose, so, you know, maybe he's still in the uh, conversation. But, I mean, that's all Nike and Phil Knight at this point trying to pry him into the conversation. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, organically thinks Bo Nix when they think of Heisman Trophy winners at this point. Utah also has a scare with Baylor. Uh, everybody ready to ride Dave Aranda out of college football uh, <laughs> after uh, they lose their opener uh, to uh, Texas State, which obviously was which a obviously yes, it was loss. A loss. And um, you know uh, Baylor has uh, not shown the most consistency, and uh, certainly they were much more ready to play against Utah. Maybe they overlooked Texas State. And we're kind of ready for this Utah game. Uh, they certainly look more prepared, and they gave Utah I give a game, a, another game, which you know Utah really could have, maybe should have lost, and were able to come back. Utah's still playing uh, without their starting quarterback, though Cameron Rising, and so he's a pretty big part of the puzzle. Um, he will certainly be uh, good to go for USC. You know that, um, and uh, he's a guy that's been a thorn in USC side a little bit. And so, you know, Utah, they still get it done. They still play good defense. They still keep games close, you know, hard to blow out Utah. But one thing that's uh, for sure, Utah is a different team on the road than they are at home. And USC is going to get them at home this year. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. If you're a Trojan fan, let me tell you, you need to pray that Utah stays undefeated because Utah undefeated playing in the Coliseum and Utah has some buzz is much better than when you get the um, underdog uh, Kyle Winningham, you know, just give them the championship already type of uh, Utah team. You know, you, that's the team you don't want to – you really don't want to play that team in Salt Lake City, and, um, you, you know, you just don't want to kind of play them in general with a chip on their shoulder. They've got that Virginia Tech sort of uh, um, 
you know, that, uh, that Frank Beamer, Virginia Tech, like they're not ranked. And you've got, you know, big, bad Florida State coming in and, and playing and then inner Sandman to open the game. And, uh, you know, it's just like it's got upset written all over it, all over it. And that's kind of the Utah team when they get to play at home. So uh, hopefully USC gets uh, uh, the Utah team that played um, at Baylor and um, <laughs> they can uh, they can, you know, put up enough points that it kind of takes Utah out of their game. And then we got to see, you know, kind of um, the, the little bit of the cap on that big week two weekend with Miami stomping Texas A&M. And so we're looking at Texas A&M being like they were last year. And obviously they got off the rails a little bit. And uh, that's more of a recruiting um, porthole type of um, impact that it has on college football. Cause you know, we listed some guys that they got last year, some five-star guys that they've got from the 2022 class that are still uh, on the roster, uh, you know, guys uh, that, um, you know, maybe they're not playing a whole lot. Maybe they're not making a big impact. I didn't see a whole lot of Walter Nolan, the big uh, interior defensive lineman. He actually did play well, I think, in their opener, which was, you know, against, again, some uh, pipsqueak school that I think is rivals with uh, Trevino Tech. But, you know, when whoa, you're whoa, starting whoa, to whoa. play, whoa, 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 whoa. But when you're playing, um, you know, some some legitimate teams, um, that, uh, that, that, that can fight back a little bit, you know, it's, it's not uh, quite as easy. And, uh, we didn't see some of those players making plays. So we'll see what the, what the fallout is, you know, I mean, it's early in the season, Texas, uh, A&M could come back, but, um, I don't know. Miami doesn't look super strong to me. It, it looked like Texas A&M was just being Texas A&M. Yeah. I Miami mean, was just a little better. Miami, you looked at it and Miami, you felt like Miami, could have lost that game. They rushed for like 3.2 yards per carry. They had a, over a hundred yards and penalties and it didn't matter. They were still that much like better than Texas A&M. So it was a weird game, but yeah, Texas, Texas A&M, A&M just, yeah. just doesn't look good offensively. They've got athletes on defense, but they're very inconsistent. They give up a lot of big plays. It's the same team we saw last year. I mean, at least in that game, I don't feel like either of those teams really improved a whole lot from last year. I, I just didn't see anything that was, oh, wow, this team is is so much better, and that's why the outcome is different. I, I just think it was Miami was playing, you know, a game up in Orlando. It wasn't on the road. They didn't have, um, you know, Texas A&M didn't have the home field advantage, but they both kind of were back and forth a little bit with mediocre quarterback play. I'm not sold that Van Dyke is like some great quarterback now. Um, yeah, I, I just I think both teams are a little undisciplined and, um, you know, those Mario Cristobal teams are uh, always kind of on the border of, of being, um, you know, undisciplined, kind of giving up penalties. And then, you know, if it's a close game, it tends to go away from them because uh, Cristobal is just not a good game manager. So, yeah, uh, I, I wasn't really impressed with either teams. I, I, I think, you know, obviously with Texas A&M, USC is recruiting head to head a lot with them. And you've got at the high school ranks, Draylon Miller. Uh, you've got Ty Anthony Smith there that uh, USC is is going to keep working on. And then, like we said, with the portal, you know, maybe you get another Anthony Lucas or somebody off that defensive front from Texas A&M. Um, and finally, the biggest game of uh, the weekend uh, was actually earlier in the day where Texas defeats Alabama, number three. And I was going back and forth with some guys I know at Alabama that uh, cover uh, the Crimson Tide. And um, they don't have a quarterback, Chris. Uh, their problem is uh, 
they do not have Bryce Young. They do not have a guy that is a legitimate threat in the passing game. And they got to figure that out because their running game is good and they've got dudes as far as running backs. But the offensive line, I mean, I don't I don't know what it was. Maybe Texas is just that good in the defensive front, but they just couldn't seem to get the running game going. And they got to run the ball to win games. Alabama this year has to run the ball to win games. And like I said, They've got talent. They've got multiple four-star, five-star running backs there in the stable. They've got a huge offensive line full of guys that are five-stars and full-stars. But that's what they are, and that's what they need to do. And I feel like against Texas, they kind of tried to be more balanced than maybe they should have been. Yeah, it was uh, – I mean, I wish I our iPad, again, hadn't been destroyed because I would have the uh, the Texas were back uh, – audio call for them so yeah it was a huge win for the longhorns uh kind of a surprising win that just how much they kind of like uh abused alabama but again like you said alabama has no quarterback that was kind of the uh the talk in the spring around the crimson tide is that alabama doesn't have a quarterback or maybe their quarterback play is not going to be that great and it's going to end up being the uh the killer for this season so we'll see uh what happens with the, the Crimson Tide and Texas, obviously, is a, is a school that USC recruits up against in the Lone Star State. And Texas also comes out to California with Steve Sarkeesian. So that's only going to make it a little bit harder for, for USC recruiting the Lone Star State when Texas is rolling hot. And they're ro- yeah. rolling high right now. They're rolling high. They're beatable, though. I, I think sure. you know, that was the thing, watching them... I didn't feel like the offense was amazing. I think Quinn Ears is still a bit inconsistent. Uh, They don't have Bijan Robinson, and at the running back position, they looked kind of ordinary. I do like their offensive line. I think their offensive line is playing well, so I think you can have some utility backs there, guys that are are decent but not necessarily the kind of game breakers. I mean, it's hard to find a a Bijan Robinson. I mean, USC is going to be in that position trying to – uh, replace Caleb. You know, everybody's going to go, well, you don't got Caleb anymore. And so Texas is kind of in that um, situation. But yeah, offensively, I thought they were eh, okay. Defensively, I mean, I think they were good up front. They played really well up front. Again, I felt like Alabama didn't lean into the run enough and really test Texas for stretches with the run. They kept trying to pass the ball and stay balanced. And I just don't think that quarterback Milrow has it. So I'm not 100% sure what to make of Texas's defense if it's really like the real deal when you know you feel like you've got just a quarterback that a the coaching staff doesn't trust and I think his confidence really sort of took a hit there mid game uh, after a pick and and after kind of just not being settled very much and so um, yeah Texas is definitely I would think is probably going to lose a couple games this season still. Um, I don't know what their schedule is you know, like in terms of away games and everything, but you know, there it's Sarkeesian teams sort of have that knack of being able to lose games that uh, they shouldn't. So I, I don't see them being so far and away talented that they can, um, they can get over that. They can get past that. Uh, I think there's a, a chance that they, they still uh, lose a couple games and everybody, you know, is, is shocked because they went into Alabama and it was a great statement game. I mean, it's a great game for recruiting. I mean, look at what Texas A&M was able to do 
um, they're still living off that win against Alabama. That was a better Alabama team. Um, but yeah, you go and you have those type of wins and, you know, you can definitely rally around it to some extent with recruiting, especially when you, you know, uh, supplement it with, uh, some big fat checks from uh, NIL. Big fat check podcast. How about that? Well, there was, uh, the suggestion of having it, the white envelope podcast. I thought that was pretty tacky as well. (laughs) Gerard, are you ready to go into our final segment? Listener questions. Do it. Do it. We only have three right now, so it should be relatively... What do you mean right now? <laughs> Are we looking for more? Are we, no, like, I'm just this saying... Is a, this like, is not a live podcast. Right, it's not a live podcast, but you know, sometimes Eddie has been known to DM me a, a uh, voicemail over Instagram out of nowhere, so right now... Eddie's going to get those digits, and he's going to start texting you stuff. Yeah, I'm going to get an uh, anonymous or a block number kind of deal. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to email us a question, you can email us at podcast.youtube.com. Just make sure you put the composite, cilantro boys, recruiting podcast, whatever. It'll go to my inbox. Gerard, let's start off with a question from Paul in Vegas. Hi, curious if we have any kind of portal evaluation group. That is analysts reviewing tape on college games to evaluate players on other teams that if they were to hit the portal, we have them fully evaluated and can pull the trigger with an offer as soon as possible. Thanks, Paul in Vegas. Gerard, I actually misinterpreted this question initially. I thought he meant 247. I thought he said, does he have 247 have analysts constantly watching people? That doesn't make any sense. He's talking about USC. Do they have a portal evaluation group that has evaluations ready to go of players that potentially could enter the portal? They should. Uh, what we do know is that uh, the House of – no, yes, the House of Victory, uh, which is one of the collectives, is being run by Spencer Harris, who was a former personnel guy. Um, I believe he was the director of player personnel at USC under Clay Helton, and he's you know kind of the head of the House of Victory. So you know I think with the collectives, they have to have – people that are aware and involved and, and, you know, it's like, who are you working for at that point? And and the collectives have to be separate from the university. So technically you're working for the boosters. And so the boosters and the people that are involved from that standpoint of giving money, they should be very aware of having people on their side of the table who can also critique and give evaluations and give opinions on these players. It, it cannot be, well, we'll just leave it up to the coaching staff. I mean, yeah, it, you should have it on that end too, but I think it kind of needs to be on, on both ends and make sure that, you know, there's, there's some type of either agreement or there are people there that have the experience that can pound the table and say, yeah, look at, okay, this is the group that we're looking at. Um, these guys are projected to potentially transfer these guys we know are already going to transfer and do your evaluations from that standpoint um usc should have a a group of uh personnel analysts that are looking over film and it's you know it's difficult because you know what film are you pulling you know are you just looking at the group of guys that you have recruited in the past and you potentially have relationships with you know, that's kind of shrinking 
the pool of potential talent, you know, did you have a relationship with Jordan Addison when he was in high school? No. Uh, I think Caleb Williams might have known him. You know, they're both Maryland guys. So maybe there was that connection there. But from an evaluation standpoint, I mean, that was an easy one. But there's other ones that might be a bit more up in the air. And, you know, you kind of have to scramble a little bit because you may not have recruited that player out of high school. I think, you know, you do the best you can do. And so if you look at it from that perspective of, okay, who are the guys we're familiar with? Because we recruited them out of high school. We've already evaluated them. We're going to earmark those players as guys that we feel like no matter what, like they go and they don't play, they don't play well. Maybe they have a a legal issue or something comes up. We feel comfortable trying to reach out if they are in the transfer portal and getting them here to USC. Like we can fix whatever issues they have because we're confident with the evaluation. Now, I mean, I've always said you want to evaluate the player by what they're doing in college and get rid of the nostalgia of high school. But at the very least, doing it that way, you know who you have phone numbers for, you know the angles, you know the champions in the room with that player. Um, but again, I mean, if you if you go by who, who USC has landed out of the portal, it's 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 a mixed bag, you know. Uh, Marshawn Lloyd. Okay. Well, he, he's from Maryland, I believe. So maybe there again, is that connection with Caleb Williams? Okay. Mario Williams connection with Caleb Williams. When Caleb's gone, you're going to have to figure out another way to find guys, um, and get on those guys early. You know, Mason Cobb, there was no connection really there. Um, but they were able to get on that one. And I don't think that's a player. I mean, maybe there was some connection because, he did go to Oklahoma State. I don't know how hard he was recruited, recruited by Oklahoma, though. He's not from Oklahoma. He's from Utah. So, yeah, you have to be able to earmark guys, I think, that you look at out of high school for just the simple fact that you have a relationship with. And if they check the boxes from an evaluation standpoint, you're able to act quickly. That is a big thing. So you're able to get involved. Bear Alexander, he's not out there very long, and people are already saying he's going to USC. Now, why is that? You know, there you have to have some relationships there. And so I think, again, you know, some of these guys you bring in on official visits, maybe they are long shots, but you don't know what's going to happen down the line. And, and whether it's playing time, whether it's coaches that come and go, uh, or, you know, potentially it's an NIL situation where NIL wasn't, what they thought it was going to be. You know, that's been sort of mentioned a little bit uh, behind the scenes with Anthony Lucas. And so, you know, if a guy feels like he's been sold a bag of goods and he's not getting out of some a situation that he thought he was going to get out of, uh, he might be ready to, to move on just because of that. And certainly that's a better way to go after players um, if you feel they are valued and they are worth, um, you know, more uh, to get a guy then, you know, an injury or something else that, you know, they're, they're leaving the program. They're, they're basically, you know, being weeded out of the program because there's been some of those pickups uh, that USC has had where it's just dead weight in the roster. You really don't want that. I mean, that's the other side of it where you got to be very careful. So I think, you know, the answer to that question, do they, I don't, I don't know. I assume on USC's staff side, they've got some people that are 
looking at, I would say just at the very least, just checking statistics, checking participation charts of guys that you recruited in the 2022, 2023 class, guys you have might have a relationship with and keeping your ear to the ground, you know, in case you get that call from a high school coach, in case you get that call from a trainer um, or, or, or maybe one of those players calls one of your players and just knowing potentially you could be out there. And then on top of it though, you know, I, I think the big staffs and I, and this is where probably USC's not, you know, necessarily in this echelon, I'm sure Alabama, they probably got like five guys that are literally going through film of just everybody, every, like, you know, all the division two guys or, you know, FCS level guys, uh, just, I mean, literally looking at all these other colleges from that standpoint is like farm teams potentially. I mean, if you're not doing that and you're Alabama and you've got 40, 50 support staff members, then you're, you're doing it wrong. You know, um, I don't think USC is probably there, uh, but you can be at least at a point where the players that, you know, coming out of high school, you follow them, you know, you just kind of, again, you kind of put that earmark on the guy and go, okay, well, you know, keep, keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on, you know, how is he, is he participating? Is he making an impact? Is he a good player? You know, is he a guy that we liked in high school, but we just weren't sure of, and he went to Oregon state or he went to San Jose state, UNLV, um, you know, any of those other schools where you feel like, he, you know, Arizona is another one where, like a situation with Dorian Singer, they feel like, hey, I, I, I can level up here at USC. You know, Arizona is uh, whatever. I, I can go uh, do more at USC, and um, you know, maybe they were kind of sort of passed over. But um, you know, Christian Roland Wallace is a good example of one of those type of players, and so that's something that I think USC can do. But again, on both sides of the table not just within the support staff at USC, but I think the boosters should be, I mean, if you really want to have a collective that, that works and, and is, and is, and is finding guys that are really going to contribute, there should be some knowledge on that side of the table as well. And it's not just, uh, you know, um, maybe the coaches that are just dictating. I, I just think you got to have guys that, that there's some trust level there because at the end of the day, you're asking these donors to give money out of their own pocket. And that's a tricky thing because we're not, this is not the NFL. These guys are not making their money back on merchandise. They're not making their money back on butts in the seats. They're not making their money back on anything that they're paying a player. They're literally paying guys and just hoping that, I don't know, they get, you know, some type of, uh, I don't know what you really get out of it. I mean, you know, you, even if a facility, you might get your name on the building. Uh, but with this, you're just you're not getting all of that back. So it's going to become one of those things over time. You know, is it sustainable? And the guys that are giving money, you know, they're going to start to say, hey, I've I've spent millions here. And the three guys that we brought in, they haven't played at all. Like we need to we need to tighten it up. So don't get to that point. Tighten it up now and make sure you have people in place. And, you know, with from a collective standpoint, you know, do those guys have the same restrictions when it comes to recruiting as full-time people at USC, they're not USC employees. So, you know, can you have people out there that are that are evaluating in person and actually seeing some of these guys in person? Eh, trust me, I, I mean, this is all new, but some of these schools are definitely, you know, the the I think approach is uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness and permission. And so, I, I would think that they probably are are, are already doing that at this point. The next question has actually been a question I've had stored away for 
several weeks, mainly because I keep forgetting to add it to the docket because I got it through Facebook Messenger. And this is not an invitation for people to Facebook message me questions, but this question comes from Scott. And Gerard, I don't think you're going to like this question, but here we go. I have the opportunity to go to a nice steak dinner. I know I can go to Mashrose or STK and get a tremendous meal that I will know that I know I will love. I also have the opportunity to go to Gerard's Steakhouse. The reviews aren't great. And they don't offer the cut of steak I know I'll love. I went to see the place and it wasn't the cleanest as a roach ran past me when I entered the place. I'm, go I'm going to go there anyway because maybe they have something off the menu that I'll find palatable. Is this an accurate example of KVA's commitment to Notre Dame? Have you heard of a dumber reason to commit to a school? Now, before Gerard defends Gerard's Steakhouse, I want to say this does read like uh, sour grapes and the fact that you were referring to Notre Dame as a poorly reviewed rundown steakhouse compared to a Mastro's or STK. In this opinion, it is USC and Ohio State. I don't think that's an accurate description of Notre Dame because it is a good school. It is a blue blood program. And yeah, I just think that's not a fair representation of the school. And I don't have another point to add to that. It's a very poor comparison and analogy and at my expense, nonetheless. <laughs> so I say copium, copium, copium. What does that mean? That means you're trying to cope. And because coping sometimes becomes very easy and addictive, it becomes a drug. So it's like heroin. So you put them together and it's like opium and coping. So it's copium. Okay. I learned something new today. For the most part, I would say that is not an accurate representation of the situation. And my brain is too short-circuited to maybe find a better analogy for this. So I'm just going to move on to our last question. Hey, Chris and Garage. First day crew here. Shout out to the first day crew. Just wanted to mention that I'm one of the few people where cilantro tastes like soap. So whatever you call yourself, cilantro boys, my mind plays tricks on me and my taste buds. But I love the podcast, so I power through it. Well, we thank you very much for powering through it. I have two questions for you guys. Let's start with the first one, Gerard. First, with Brandon Baker and DeAndre Carter committed to other programs, do you think Lincoln Riley and Coach Henson can take any lessons from those recruitments and apply them to other highly ranked local offensive line prospects in future classes, specifically thinking about the three linemen from Bosco in 2025? I feel like there's any lesson to be learned and maybe how they played the DeAndre Carter recruitment. Yeah, you're thinking Bishop Gorman in 2025, but yeah. I think with is that, is Carter, that what I said? Is that what I no, said? No, you said you said uh, uh, Bosco. Sorry, um, Bishop Gorman. Bishop Gorman. I think with Carter, yes. With Brandon Baker, I think really that just comes down to nil. That's my personal opinion. With Carter, I again think it's more of, you know, we want to push. We want it. We have momentum after our first week of June, and they did. They got some commitments. And they just wanted to kind of get things wrapped up. And I think they read that situation wrong and thought, hey, DeAndre Carter, like, let's let's get it going. Let's do it. You've been here. You've unofficially visited. You know, we, you know, 
official visit. You're going to be on a yacht. You know, make the decision, man. And he just wasn't ready and he felt pressured. And that was that. And so, again, I, I think in my opinion, my humble opinion, and, you know, I'm not trying to uh, say that I know more than the coaching staff or these guys that have been recruiting professionally for years. But I do think the strategy of just take the best players you can, any of the guys that you think are going to be able to contribute to your program, and you make those decisions as to what your numbers look like towards the end of the year, and you kind of just let things sort themselves out. I, I do think that's the best strategy. Now, the argument against that would be, well, you're going to have to let guys go that have been committed towards the end of the year, that's going to piss off high school coaches, that's going to piss off their parents, so on and so forth. But I don't I don't think, A, that it's really going to be at the end of the year. Um, B, uh, these guys can drop you as commits in the blink of an eye as well. Okay, Cry for me, Argentina. There's no sort of, hey, uh, you've been committed since June and now you're decommitting at the end of November, what do we do? Well, what do you do? You you go to plan D at that point, probably. And nobody is going to cry for the coaching staff or USC. So, you know, the whole sort of non-binding verbal commitment thing, it's a two-way street. And I think you've got to be aggressive in recruiting and you just got to get uh, whatever numbers you got to get. But that really is more of a decision towards the end of the year than it is in June. And so from that standpoint, maybe it's like, hey, you know, in future, if uh, we need four, but we can take six guys that we like, then we'll take six guys that we like. And we'll recruit the guys really hard that we feel the best about and move forward. And if guys decommit, the guys decommit. And we still, you know, we're going to have our numbers. Um, but, you know, obviously they felt you know, very confident with Manasseh Tete and, um they, they felt really good where they were. And uh, Isaac Garcia and DeAndre Carter, um, you know, Ju- uh, Justin Atuanau, those guys, they um, they were kind of, you know, kind of on the outside looking in, I, I guess, at that point. But um, it's a, it, like I said, it's a long year. And, you know, these guys can decommit at any time. It's uh, verbal. It's non-binding. And so I think, you know, the schools uh, over time have sort of taken that philosophy as, you know, we're going to take the guys that uh, we, we really want is it and it gets, you know, as the season prolongs and everything and you kind of see what's what and you also do, you know, further evaluations. Then you kind of see, oh, hey, listen, you know, um, we're looking at our roster. We're looking at the guys that could leave because that's another aspect of all this. It's, again, the transfer portal and the guys that are leaving and you may have more guys leave than you thought. You know, you don't want to. Yeah, but at the end of the day, sometimes that might happen. It's like, wait, you know what? We could have taken five guys on the offensive line. So we didn't need to make any hard decisions. Yeah, I think that's got to happen uh, later on. And the final part of this question, second, with rumblings about Julian Lewis transferring high schools, I wanted to ask which high school you would transfer to if you were a high-ranking prospect. Keep up the great work. Ken from San Diego. I'm going to assume that... We're referring to California schools in this uh, scenario. So Gerard, I feel like Gerard's old school, he wouldn't transfer anywhere. He would stay at his alma mater. No yeah, but that's no fun. Wins. That's no fun for the question. So I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm thinking of an answer now, but you go ahead and 
I, I almost I could guess what you're going to say. Oh, what am I going to say? I think you're going to say Bosco. That is on my short list, but also I am flirting with the possibility of Long Beach Poly just because I'll tell you a story real quick. I remember I was a freshman in high school at DeMatha Catholic uh, High School and the big Sports Illustrated spread is what it's a famous sports illustrated issue i don't remember who's on the cover but it was famous for because it ranked high school athletic programs and the number two athletic program in the country rated by sports illustrated and this is when sports illustrated was the bible remember that this is when sports illustrated was the bible my school DeMatha, was rated the number two high school in america and they said the only reason we – one of the reasons we got dock points is because we are an all-boys school. We don't have girls' athletics, obviously. And the number one school, Gerard, you want to guess what the number one school was? Long Beach Poly. Long Beach Poly. So for my whole – the rest of my high school career, I have just had Long Beach Poly. Like, who is this number one Long Beach Poly? And yeah, Poly Envy. Yeah, Poly Envy. I, I was green with the Poly Envy. So this has always been in the back of my mind. And then obviously when I got the job working for the Long Beach Press-Telegram, it just felt full circle because obviously Long Beach was the premier school. Long Beach Poly was the premier school that the Press-Telegram covered. And Long Beach Poly obviously has this long story history as a national power and churning out all these college stars and NFL stars and NFL players in general and just across the board, their athletics of all the famous people that have come through uh, those halls, I would say I would be leaning towards Long Beach Poly, just for me. Now, did you, once you actually saw Long Beach Poly, did you walk around campus going, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But but a lot of my friends- math is so much better than this. A lot of my friends went to Long Beach Poly, so they like to to razz me all the time. Like, oh, do you guys remember who the number school is? In the country, do you guys remember? Yeah, so I get a lot of that, but but still, I would uh I would choose Long Beach Poly with Bosco being my backup in case I didn't get in academically. This is a tough one. You can go a lot of different ways with this question. I would not pick anybody in the Trinity League. Okay, and certainly not Bosco or Modern Day because there's plenty in of the players League. there. Sure, and I wouldn't. Where, where I felt like I could make a difference in the team. I still want to play for a good team with good coaching, but I want to be a difference maker, and I want to make sure that I can stand out. So you obviously go with the coaches that you like and you feel have developed good talent. And two guys – I know where you're going. I know where you're going. I know where you're going. going. You're going to Centennial. Maybe that okay. is one of them. One of okay. two centennial okay. because a, I think Matt Logan is a rock star and he has done so much more with less than really anybody in Southern California. Uh, considering that even as good as centennial has been, they still have guys out of Corona that get recruited that end up at modern day and Santa Margarita and all over the place and yet still has a very talented team year in and year out. And so 
from that standpoint, I just love Matt, and I just think that he runs such a good program. He does right by those kids. He's so damn organized for a public school. It's unbelievable. I mean, again, I told a story of being down there, and um, we were chatting, and he's like, oh, I, hey, I got to go do this thing. Uh, let's walk and talk. And we're walking, and then he opens up these doors to this room, and it's the equipment room. And he's going through and he's listing off pads um, and taking them, taking the jerseys off and stacking the pads from the freshman team because they just had their little local thing that they have before Thanksgiving. They have like a JV freshman game. And I'm like looking around going, dude, you're Matt Logan. Why are you doing this? Don't you have somebody else, some student assistant, somebody <laughs> that can do this? Like we, you're stacking freshman pads and you're piling up all of the jerseys to go and put in the laundry. Like, it, you know, but that's Matt. I mean, Matt is literally, he is a micromanager. He's involved. He has printouts for all of the counselors that every kid has phone numbers, parents, like he's on top of everything in that program. And, uh, and he's just a great guy. So from that standpoint, you know, Centennial comes up top of the list, but I tell you, you know, I, I was out there at Redlands and I saw our boy KB, Kurt Bruick, and, um, you know, got a little history there with the Bruicks and, uh, they got a real pretty school out there, man. They're, they're, you know, I think Citrus Valley is very nice, very nice. You could you could be a big time player, go out there and be a standout, and you'd be a dude. You know, you would you would definitely uh, be a guy, get really good coaching, and you would stand out. Another place would be like kind of a low key place out here would be Eastvale Roosevelt. They've always had such top notch facilities. Like from a facility standpoint, it's a beautiful school. It's it's just beautiful, but. You know, I mean, they have not been nearly as good um, and, and they haven't been as consistent. Uh, Tommy Leach had them kind of going there for a bit and they're a playoff kind of caliber team. Um, but, yeah, I kind of would lean toward maybe Citrus Valley. It'd be hard to beat Centennial, though. Coach KB, great guy. Covered it, obviously, went out there. When I was out there as a sports editor for the Redlands Daily Facts, my guy. Full circle, so. man. Long Beach, Redlands, and let's go. Yeah, Let's go. We're, we're out here. We're out here. Gerard, that is the final question. And that wraps up another episode of the composite two-star recruits. I saw Gerard. I wanted to make this point at the top of the show, but I'll just do it right now. Gerard, I saw Oppenheimer last night and it's literally a three hour movie on the dot. And then I realized that our show last week was literally longer than the, the movie Oppenheimer. So I, I think we could take that as a pat on the back to ourselves. Kaboom. You're welcome. Is that a bomb reference? Because it's the atomic bomb. Kaboom. That is the ultimate reference of the peristyle. <laughs> you noob, you casual, shut off the podcast now. All right. Uh, I'm Chris. That is Gerard. His IE card is no longer under review. We will catch you next time. It's laminated, baby. <laughs> Laminated. We will, we will catch you. I mean, scissors can cut through lamination, but that's besides the point. We are... Leaving this show, we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. That leopard sucks!